That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Trailblazers fans, how are you doing with the NBA draft? Uh, approaching rapidly objects in mirror maybe nearer it's happening what are we 48 hours away or so give or take what are the blazers gonna do amid all the smoke i told you last week i thought there would be smoke and smoke and more smoke and that they'll pick at number three and then maybe trade 23 or 43 and make a deal that is a smaller scale deal for a veteran player but uh, really interesting to watch the uh, scuttlebutt around the Blazers today. A lot of trade rumors with Miami. Over the weekend, it became uh, evident to me that Camp Lillard was looking at possibly Miami as his destination and maybe trying to orchestrate some of that. Uh, a couple of uh, different media outlets reporting that the Blazers are putting together a trade offer for Miami and all this other stuff. Others reporting that it might be uh, the Pelicans in a trade for Zion Williamson. And others yet, like Brian Windhorst of ESPN, says uh, he thinks the Blazers are going to keep the third pick. I agree with him. And make it. How about you, Blazer fan? Where are you today? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Way in. Tell me how you're doing. How are you feeling with the draft approaching this week on Thursday? We've talked about it. The team has talked about it. The agents have talked about it. The players have worked out. And now we're down to kind of that uh, period of 24 to 48 to 72 hours where it's a lot of speculation, it's a lot of smoke, and about every 30 minutes a new Trailblazers rumor. Now, this is how I think it's going to go in the next 48 hours. I think you're going to continue to see the Blazers bantered about as a team that could make deals. I think you're going to have Damian Lillard and his camp kind of back off the idea that they want out, not necessarily because they don't want out, but because it doesn't behoove them to look like they want out in case he doesn't get traded. And it also doesn't help to look like you want out if you do expect to be traded. There's no advantage for Damian Lillard to bang the drum and make it more difficult for the Blazers to make a deal. But I want to know what you think. It's your turn. You weigh in. You've heard the experts. You've heard the pundits. I'll play some of their clips on today's show. we got guests coming on that will talk about it. But I want to know, ultimately, when, uh, when you think about the Trailblazers and their next 48 hours, how are you feeling as a Blazer fan? Do you have confidence that Joe Cronin and Burt Cold, uh, presumably, can get a deal done? Do you uh, worry about the... Uh, do you worry about the uh, Blazers' short-term, long-term, near-term, uh, you know, next 48-hour term uh, of this franchise? You tell me. Uh, I want to play a couple clips here, but I want to hear from you as well. 503-417-7575. Here's Brian Windhorst saying that nothing has changed in Damian Lillard's mind 
that uh, the Blazers are starting to posture, of course, like they're going to draft a player. I think they're going to draft a player. Yeah, so in discussions with teams in the last couple of days, the Blazers have started to maybe indicate that they won't trade the number three pick and that they may end up deciding to draft the player there, whether it be Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, because they don't aren't necessarily in love with the options they're getting offered for number three. So that's obviously fascinating based on what was said by both the Blazers and Dame Lillard at the end of the season. So I checked in on the Lillard side of things about whether or not that there had been a change of heart there. And I was told unequivocally, no, Dame does not want a youth movement. He wants to play with veterans. He wants the team to upgrade fast and immediately with veteran players that can help him now. So I would just say there's a nuance here. Doesn't They don't have to get veterans only by trading the number three pick. They could do it other ways. Having said that, if the Blazers don't like what they're offered and they use this pick on one of the young players, you're potentially causing a bit of, a, of an issue there with, with Dame Lillard. And it looks more and more to me like the Blazers are going to make the pick. I, I thought all along they would make the pick at three. I would be surprised to see them trade that pick, and I think it would be a mistake unless it's a no-brainer deal. You don't do, do a deal and trade the number three pick unless it's a no-brainer. Alan Hahn of ESPN says that the Trailblazers and Damian Lillard are that couple. Everybody knows that couple. That couple that you know is going to ultimately end up split up. And I just think enough of this, right? Like at some point, Damian Lillard's got to understand. Like he keeps waiting for the organization to be the one that has to be the bad guy and say, it's time for us to move on from Dame Lillard. Then he can say, I never wanted to leave. They forced me out. But right now, they're kind of staring at each other. It's a stare down. They, they are that couple that we all know that, like, they're headed for a divorce. They just don't know it yet. And you're like, will you guys just break up already because you're miserable together? One wants to go one way. One wants to go the other. It's clear it's time because it's like crying wolf every offseason about Damian Lillard. Will he stay? Will he go? And all the machinations of different teams that he could go to. Enough, Dame. Put your feet down and walk out of the building. You're done. Let them know I'm out. No one will blame you at this point because one trade of one pick is not going to make your team a championship contender. Damian Lillard, not his style to walk out the door, not his style to be the bad guy. I do think he has his agent, Aaron Goodwin, though, working behind the scenes. And I took uh, you know, interest over the weekend as we saw Chris Haynes uh, report that Miami was the preferred destination or Miami had interest in Damian Lillard. I uh, make no bones about it. I took that as Aaron Goodwin and Camp Lillard saying, hey, we'd like to be in Miami. Here's Chris Haynes on the Dan Patrick Show talking about Miami as a potential destination for Damian Lillard. I believe the Miami Heat feel like there's hope. Like there's people across the league that believe this is the offseason that Dane could potentially request out and that's all going to be dependent on well i think a large factor of that is going to be what the portland trailblazers decide to do with the number three pick damian Lillard has made it clear he wants to play for a contending team he wants that to be in portland he wants the trailblazers to do everything in, within their power to help accelerate this roster increase the talent and part of that would be the number three pick being an attractive asset to be able to bring on a veteran player you know, probably even a star player if you package that pick with someone like Anthony Simon. So a lot is going to be a lot is going to factor in with how Portland handles the draft this coming Thursday.
I don't see. I don't think it is incumbent upon the draft, and I want your take on this as well because I think the totality of what I'm seeing and hearing is that there isn't a no-brainer deal out there for the Blazers. And the last thing that Trailblazers Inc. wants to do is get left holding the bag and looking stupid and looking like they got taken because they were trying to make Damian Lillard happy. Like, they should absolutely not trade the three-pick unless there's a no-brainer available to them. It doesn't appear that that deal is out there for them. But I also think, look, I agree kind of with Brian Windhorst's comment that you heard just a minute ago that there's other ways to get veteran players around Damian Lillard. There are other ways to attract talent. But I want to know how you're feeling as a Blazer fan. 503-417-7575. 503-417-7575. Steven, you're a Blazer fan. How are you feeling? I'm feeling better. I feel good about it. I, you know, I really, Why better? I, just, I, I have a good sense, and I'm with you. I, I've wanted the Blazers to draft a player with three, and it seems like the offers the Blazers are getting are not going to be good enough, and the Blazers are going to draft someone at three. And the reason why you want to draft somebody at three, John, the last 12 seasons, the number three pick in the draft – Six of them, 50% have been an all-star. That's how you get all-stars. That's how you get really good young players in a city like Portland in a small market. You have to draft them and to you know to trade the number three pick for a veteran who you don't necessarily know how it's going to fit with Dame, how long are the Blazers going to be actually good. Are they going to be good? I think you take that risk and you draft the number three pick in the draft, and it seems to me a lot of signs are pointing to that. Now, there is the thought of if they draft that third, you know, with third pick, that Dame's going to get upset, and I think it's okay. I think you have to play that game, and you have to say, "Is you he going to get mad? Though? Is he going to get upset though, or is he just posturing at this point? Can they pacify him by trading Anthony Simons in twenty three for a veteran player that that he thinks is part of the short term solution? I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to make him happy. I mean, he's he's let it be known, John, that he doesn't want to play with another nineteen or twenty year old. So. I think you're going to call him on his bluff and to see what he actually does, and I think that's great because you can't let one guy run the franchise, no matter how good he is, even if it's well, Dave yeah, especially Lillard. a guy who's going to be like you know 33, 34, 35 in the next few years of his contract, and and be sitting on the sideline or sitting in the stands or being brought back as an honorary captain someday. I will say this though, John, you know the the betting market. I love to look at it in the draft wise right now. Scoot Henderson is the is a decent sized favorite to be the number two overall pick, but it's mm. shifting back to Brandon Miller. A little bit. If Scoot is there at three, I think that's where it could get really interesting because I feel like the value for Scoot Henderson is a lot higher than Brandon Miller. And if he's at number three, that's when teams may jump in with big-time offers to trade for that third pick in the draft with the Trailblazers. And in that scenario, that's when I get a little worried that you know Burt Cold, if he does have his hands on it, if Joe Cron really is going to say, you know what, we want to build around Dane with Vets, that's when they make that trade when Scoot's there at three. And I think you have to draft him at three. Like, to me, you have to make that draft pick. But I think if he's there at three, there's going to be teams coming in with some hot offers that the Blazers may not have heard already. All right. Blazer fans, I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575. We'll talk to Sean Hyken of the Rose Garden Report coming up later in the show. He's got some thoughts on what works and doesn't work for the franchise. I also think, it. look, it, you, you've got a conundrum if you're the Blazers. Joe Cronin. Fairly young general manager, first job at least as a GM, uh, you know, experience-wise. You got Burt Cold over his shoulder, who is not really an owner, but is going to act like an owner on draft day. I mean, we all know the lingering issue, and I think a caller brought it up last week on the show when they said, "Hey, can they can they pick Phil Knight?" And you know, we all kind of laughed about it, but the truth is, like, that's what's missing from this franchise is just a direction and an owner who would be quoted on draft day as saying, hey, this is our direction, this is our plan, 
The Blazers have been rudderless and without a plan since the death of Paul Allen. And frankly, even before Paul Allen died in the last couple of years of his life, he wasn't exactly out front talking about the plan. Like, you know, he was he was battling some health issues, and he left it to kind of Neil Olshay, who said, hey, if we give the plan to everybody else, then it's not our plan anymore. I mean, I think you can signal the plan in broad terms to the fan base. And I think fans deserve to know. Like, can I just step back and say that, like, off the top of the show today? I think Blazer fans deserve to know what is going to happen with this franchise. They deserve to know the direction of the franchise. They deserve to know if there is a plan. They deserve to know if, you know, is the short-term plan still to build around Damian Lillard for now and then retain your future for later? That's not a plan. That's playing the hokey pokey with two feet in and two feet out. Not one foot in, one foot out. Like, you've got to make up your mind and decide, are you building for now? Are you building for later? And how are you going to get there? And by the way, Who's making the decisions? We don't know right now. Joe Cronin, the general manager, he is GM, but is he GM in name only? Will Burt Cold be constructing this roster, or will Joe Cronin have the autonomy and the ability to craft this roster and live or die with it? And and that those are questions, and I think the fan base deserves to know. And I think if you had a, a better ownership group or a ownership group, let's just say that, period, uh, yeah, I think the Blazer fans would be sitting here going towards Thursday going, hey, let me see what this franchise does and how it lines up with the plan that they've dictated. Because right now, part of the absurdity of Trailblazers, Inc. is the fact that none of us knows on Thursday, are they building for now or are they building for later? Nobody knows. Even Damian Lillard doesn't appear to know. And I, I don't know if Joe Cronin knows. So I don't know if the Blazers on Thursday are going to suddenly go, okay, we're announcing for the world that we are building for the future, and Damian Lillard, if he's happy to be here and be part of it, we'd love for him to be here, great. If they're going to signal that on Thursday, terrific. But I just wish somebody would say it. Stephen, why are they so afraid to tell us what the plan is? I think you hit on it. They don't know what the plan is, and they're just playing it uh, you know, off the seat of their pants, and they want to try to make everybody happy. I, I, th- I really do think that they are afraid that they're going to alienate the fan base if they do come out and they say, you know what, we want to draft someone with a third pick and we're looking to go younger. Because there are so many fans you know, in this area that are Trailblazer fans, but they're Dame fans. And I hear this all the time. They got, you got to do right by Dame. You owe it to Dame. Well, no, you don't. You don't owe it to Dame. Like, he is a great player. He is a great representative of the fan base, of the team. But you don't owe him anything to have to make any type of trades. You're building for the future. You're building for what's best for the franchise. And so I, I, I do worry a little bit that they're going to they're gonna do something drastic just to try to please that group of the fan base that is so loud, that does love Damian Lillard, and it doesn't necessarily help the Trailblazer franchise. Yeah, because if, you are, if you're pacifying Damian Lillard, let's be real. There's, there's two paths here, and it's not a go left and build for your future or go right or build for now. It's not even that simple because, really, if they are building for the now – they're not really building a championship contender in the short term. That's not how you. That's not the leap you make on a draft day. That 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 championship contender stuff is put together. Just examine the roster construction of the last few NBA championships. It's put together in incremental steps. Like nobody goes, oh my gosh, look at the Denver Nuggets. Man, they just chose that path and that's how they got there. No, you have to look at the incremental steps of 
all of the roster acquisition, the patience they showed with Mike Malone, some playoff appearances that went somewhere but not everywhere right away and showed that there were deficiencies. And then, oh, by the way, the Nuggets front office addressed said deficiencies, settled on players like Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic and said, hey, these are our guys. We're going to build around these guys. This is our timeline. Everything we do is going to line up with this plan and this timeline. You know, it takes time. You don't just do it, you know, in a day. And that's why I think Camp Lillard is probably a little restless because I think down deep, like if we're being real, if we put Damian Lillard, you know, under oath or we got him on a polygraph test and we could say to him, hey, do you believe that Trailblazers Inc. can build a championship contender inside of two years with you as part of the roster? I, I, I venture to say we're going to get him either to be honest and say, no, I don't think they can probably do that in two years with the current roster and the current makeup of coaching staff and, and ownership. And, it, you know, I just don't think they can do it. Or he's going to lie and say, yeah, totally, we can do it, and the, the test is going to go bonkers. And we're going to say, hey, you failed the test. Like, you don't just make up a, uh, you know, hey, we're going for a championship. Like, everybody says that. It's about what you do and, and the incremental steps that you take that nobody seems to notice. Like, I don't think... Anybody looked at what the Denver Nuggets were doing and went, oh, my gosh, today is the day where they won an NBA championship two years ago, three years ago, five years ago. Nobody did that. It's like a bodybuilder, right? You just you got in the gym. You did the work. You put in the work. You, ha- you dieted right. You made good decisions. You took incremental steps every day towards being Mr. Olympia. Like, you didn't just wake up Mr. Olympia one day because you worked out extra hard yesterday. And I kind of feel like Blazer fans and maybe the organization is trying to sell fans the idea that, hey, one of the paths is to build around Damian Lillard, and the other path is to rebuild for the future. But I think, you know, Brian Windhorst of ESPN put it astutely when he uh, recognized recently, and he said, hey, you know, uh, they've been rebuilding here for a couple years. Like, if you really look at what they've done in drafting young and going young and not being very good on the court and hiring a first-time head coach – they're in a total rebuild. This is not a finishing step that this organization's on. So the two paths, in my view, are, A, continue on this rebuild, draft the players, draft young players, may, heck, draft two good young players if you can in the first round, and see how they fit and, and try, to, try to make them part of five years from now, six years from now, when you're really uh, in a better position to contend, or you completely say, hey, it's just about putting people in the arena and selling the illusion that we're competing and continuing to sell tickets and sponsorships, and it's a business decision, and yes, it will make Damian Lillard happy because, you know, they'll at least be a playoff team, but, you know, it's path A is a rebuild, and path B is, hey, let's just try to make the playoffs. This isn't about contending right now. Like, Stephen, how far away are they from truly contending? Very far away, and, and that's my that's my argument for everything that you that people say, that they want to you know build around Dame, but they're not close, and they've been in the bottom four in defense the last four seasons. Like, that doesn't – it's this isn't the NFL where you can just revamp your team through late-round draft picks and undrafted guys, and you become solid. Like, that's not how the NBA works. The NBA does not work where you can just flip your franchise from one year to the other. So for the Blazers being so bad the last two seasons, I think you're right. Like, they can really rebuild, and they can keep going young, and then hopefully they're a little farther down the road when Dame is, you know, on a different team. Like, it's just it's unfortunate that it didn't happen that way, but your Nuggets example is perfect because – they did not just do one trade overnight, and they were great. They traded for Aaron Gordon, who fits in perfectly with Nikola Jokic. They drafted Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., who fit with Jokic perfectly. They also have a guy who's a two-time MVP and one of the top, you know, 
players of all time at his position in Nikola Jokic. Dame's not that. Dame is not that type of player. He's a really good player, but he's not on the Nikola Jokic level. And so I think for Blazer fans that think they can make one move, two moves, three moves, and they're going to be contenders, I just think it's false hope. And we just want to – I think it's because they want a contender so badly. But it's just – it's not going to happen with the Damian Lillard watch. If Dame's 28 years old, it's a different story. But he's 32, coming up to be 33. I think that's where you run into the problem. And – you gotta just you gotta you gotta trust the process. You gotta go a little bit younger, and you know what? If it just didn't work out with Dame, the Dame era is not going to end up in a championship. It's not going to end up in a Finals appearance, and I think that's okay. It's still a success, but you have to recognize that. I must say something that I've thought about in the last twenty four hours. I believe the Blazers are going to pick at three. I also believe that there's a chance they're shopping Lillard or trying to evaluate. They're certainly going to listen if there's trade offers for Lillard, but I think it's a more likely scenario that the Blazers trade Damian Lillard, then they trade the three-pick. And I don't think there's a deal that makes sense tomorrow or Thursday for Lillard. Like, I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next 48 hours. They're going to trade Damian Lillard. But I, I think the Blazers probably would entertain offers for Lillard more seriously than they would entertain offers for the number three pick at this point. Because I, I am sold that they're going to pick at three unless they're complete idiots. And you know what? Here's the caveat. They might be, they might be idiots. Leave it here. we got a great show for you today. We're going to go to Dallas, Texas next. Joe Hoyt of the Dallas Morning News is going to talk to us about SMU. Are they next team in to the Pac-12? Will they beat San Diego State through the door? Uh, I've been talking about it and thinking about it. We talk to Hoyt next. Well, I wrote uh, about SMU and San Diego State today at johnconzano.com. I took a deep dive on SMU. They have a booster at SMU, David Miller, who played basketball at SMU in the 1970s, was a center on the team. He's now a major donor to the university's NIL fund. Uh, the NIL fund at SMU is called the Boulevard Collective. Uh, he happens to also SMU's quest to join the Pac-12. Uh, when George Kiyopkoff made his visit to SMU's campus, students were there. Uh, the Dallas Morning News sent Joe Hoyt, our next guest there, but uh, also there was David Miller. And, in fact, some people at SMU who interacted with Miller at the game told me today that he walked up to them, leaned in, and whispered, we had a very good day. Now, I asked a member of the Pac-12 CEO group about Miller specifically because I've been thinking about something. Miller's got his name on a variety of buildings at SMU. He just made a $50 million donation with his wife to the university's business school a couple years ago um, he's a major mega donor i've been thinking about smu possibly buying its way into the pac-12 or subsidizing the move by saying hey we don't take any money for two years because smu i think is highly motivated to get into a power five conference uh and and start you know trying to be part of major college football again uh and i was told by a member of the pac-12 ceo group quote he has been involved. Uh, I believe that George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, has met with Miller, made his money in petroleum and, and gasoline and uh, fossil fuels, but he's now uh, got a private equity firm that is one of the biggest in the country. Is it possible SMU is trying to buy their way into the conference? Joe Hoyt, Dallas Morning News, joining us now. You were there in February when Klyovkov went to that SMU basketball game, Joe. Like, you know, you, let's go back and recap the energy of that night. What was it like in the building? Yeah, it was extremely, um, I'd probably say kind of like tense, but exciting. And 
you can almost feel it a little bit because everyone was looking for George Klyovkov. They, they knew he was there, but they couldn't find him. Uh, and ultimately, he was up in a suite. Um, but everyone kind of around SMU was feeling, hey, this is finally our time. This is our chance to get back in. We're host. It's kind of like hosting a, a big recruit, you know, these days on an official visit. You know, it kind of could be mean not that much, but for them, it kind of meant, hey, let's let's sell them and get this deal done. So that was that was an interesting night. And kind of as you touched on, and you know, uh, Rick Hart obviously met with him, and David Miller definitely met with him that night too. Yeah, and I think, you know, you look at Miller, you know, you're familiar with his names on all the sorts of buildings, names on the court at SMU. You know, there are probably several high-value donors who are involved in this, but give me an idea of when you might have heard David Miller's name as sort of, uh, you know, the guy flying around the country trying to get SMU into another conference. Yeah, no, it's been a while. So I think one thing you got to remember about David Miller is that he is the, the chair of the Board of Trustees, too, which is a really powerful position, obviously, at SMU. And you kind of touched on it a little bit. This is a guy that grew up, you know, wanting to play at SMU. You know, he saw what they were at, you know, in the Southwestern Conference. You know, he's from Richland, which is a little bit, you know, towards the Fort Worth side. And, you know, he nearly committed to Texas Tech, but said, wait, you know, his mom said, hey, wait one day and you know, maybe the SMU offer will come, and it did. And so this is a guy that's kind of had a lifelong journey of, of trying to make SMU kind of what he always envisioned it would be. And, you know, obviously the death penalty kind of brought SMU back, and um, he's been trying to bring them back to prominence, you know, as a donor, um, now as the, you know, uh, the board chair. And, and kind of as you touched on, I think that he's put in a lot of miles flying over the last year and a half trying to talk to anyone he can to get SMU into a Power 5 conference and show that they're ready for a return to prominence. Joe Hoyt, Dallas Morning News with us. Uh, You know, somebody asked me today how quickly SMU basketball, how quickly SMU football could compete. Now, now that kind of points to the Boulevard, the NIL collective there on campus. What is the buying power of the Boulevard in your mind? Uh, It's immense. Um, I, I think that it's, I think the Boulevard collectors buying power and obviously I know paper play quote unquote, not a thing. Um, but I think the Boulevard is kind of the great equalizer, you know, in terms of, of SMU's kind of recruiting efforts. Um, I think that they're a team specifically, let's look at football. I think they're a team that believes that they can recruit like a power five team. I think if you look at the average recruiting rankings of their 2024 class, and I believe they only have four commits because they're really going to go more transfer heavy and more likely but those four commits kind of have an average that would place them in the mid-tier point of the Pac-12 right now, as it is. And so if you're kind of already competing at a Power 5 level, all you need is that Power 5 kind of label to maybe even boost that recruiting. And that's what a lot of people here believe, and I think the Boulevard Collective plays a huge part of it. Uh, just for some perspective, uh, Oregon's hosting, you know, four kids from Duncanville, which is a high school powerhouse right south of SMU right now. One of them is uh, Colin Simmons, who is a number one edge rusher in the country, five-star prospect before he was at Oregon. I mean, Oregon, he was at Alabama. And before that, he did an official visit at SMU. So SMU was able to get an official visit for him. And they believe that with a power five label, they could convince some of these guys to actually stay home. Yeah. Joe, let me ask you too, because I talked to somebody with the Boulevard collective and I said, you know, and it's always, you're always going to get the week on us from the inside. Right. I said, where do you rank? You know, and it was the head of the collective. And I said, where do you rank if we put you in the Pac-12? And he believes that they would be only behind Oregon and Division Street as far as buying power, which I think is going to scare some people in the Pac-12. Like, I don't think Oregon State, Washington State, and Arizona are going to want to hear that because they go, okay, wait a minute, you know, we're bringing somebody in and 
potentially bringing somebody in that's going to compete at a high level. Can you look at what TCU has done with Sonny Dykes and compare it to what SMU could be? Is there any of that rubbernecking going on? Yeah, I think that that's a great comparison. I think that's something that's really kind of bought in a lot of SMU Board of Trustees members is, hey, look at what TCU just did. You see all those zeros after, you know, on those uh, on those contracts from getting to a CFP, you know, and all that money that that generates. I think that that has become kind of a modeling point for a lot of SMU people. And I think it's interesting. I think it's a great point you brought up about, hey, can that scare some of the people in the Pac-12? Because, John, there's a reason that SMU has not been allowed to come back in the Big 12. You know, there's, it makes a lot of logistical sense. It's a former Southwest Conference team. But I think a lot of people know what SMU did, obviously, in the Southwestern Conference before the death penalty. And I think a return to a Power 5 label is kind of one thing that could kind of awaken this monster a little bit in the eyes of some people. Yeah, that competition with TCU is interesting. And I feel like I've watched on social media a little bit of backbiting. Maybe some of it's natural because of the geography, but – is that is the state of Texas big enough for all these schools in Houston and TCU and Texas Tech and you know uh, Texas A and M and Texas and we start to look at the Dallas market, Joy. We start to go. We start to go. Hey, you know, it, it, is there enough there? You know, when you look at that, Joe, what do you see? I, I think that you know we talk about SMU as kind of this like, hey, can they bring the Dallas market? And I don't think that's. I think that's something that a lot of even pro teams here in Dallas struggle with. Right. I think it's kind of the Cowboys, and then, you know, you kind of got a lot of people fighting for things. I think A&M and Texas obviously have huge presence here. So does Texas Tech, TCU obviously in Fort Worth. So I think, you know, in terms of the market size, I think SMU, and, you know, we've talked, I mean, people have talked about it ad nauseum. I think SMU brings kind of an opening for, you know, the Pac-12 to finally, you know, crack into Texas. And I think from a recruiting standpoint – it's, it's vital for some of these teams. I mean, you look at how Oregon's already recruiting, for example, in Texas. I mean, now give, the, give them the chance to walk into kids' rooms and tell them, hey, we'll be back here every year, other year, um, you know, in Texas every single year. So, Joe Hoyt, Dallas Morning News is with us. Um, you know, San Diego State got a lot more public attention about, you know, their possibility, their fit in the Pac-12. Maybe some of that is geography. But maybe some of it, Joe, is because SMU – uh, went so quiet. It's a p- private school, kind of got its hand slapped, I think, a little bit after that February visit, and it's been very quiet on that front. From your view, covering the program, covering this story, um, you know, have you seen continued enthusiasm? It appears that both sides have continued to talk, and it and, and SMU seems to be expecting an invitation. I'd say SMU is expecting an invitation, and I'd also add though that I think that they've been confident for the last year. I mean, you know, I kind of wrote this the other day. You look at when UCLA and USC decided to leave. That was nearly a year ago. You know, we're talking about early July. And since then, I believe SMU has been confident they're going to get a Power 5 invite somewhere, whether that was the ACC, the Pac-12, or even the Big 12. And I think, obviously, relationships with the Pac-12 have strengthened. And I think even since that February meeting, even though there's been a lot of time and not a lot of chatter since then, I think that confidence really hasn't waned. I think – I think there's natural, like, oh, hey, you know, things are kind of taking a while. If it was so easy, why wouldn't it be done already? Kind of, you know, thoughts around that. But I don't think SMU's wavered in that confidence. And, and ultimately, I think when an offer were to come from the Pac-12, um, especially if the Pac-12 is in its current status um, and, you know, people don't defect, I think that SMU would be pretty quick to say yes. We're talking to Joe Hoyt, Dallas Morning News. All right, basketball-wise, Larry Brown had it going there at SMU. Where do they stand today in basketball in your mind? 
Um, you know, they've got some work to do. They had a, uh, you know, last season was the first year under head coach Rob Lanier, and uh, it was definitely kind of a, uh, you know, learning the, you know, learning the lay of the land and kind of, you know, getting a lot of transfers in and just kind of seeing what they can do. They struggled mightily um, ultimately, but I think that they really like their transfer hall this year. And, and, you know, SMU basketball is, like you said, it's had some success previously. And being in Texas, you kind of have that recruiting angle too. You know, it's kind of funny. A lot of high school kids from Dallas are now kind of transferring to some of these, you know, other big programs, you know, these big high school charter schools. And it's funny. I think a lot of SMU basketball people might be saying, hey, you know, let's kind of do what football does and try to bring these guys back home after they've gone from home, these five-star, four-star recruits when they're feeling a little homesick. And it's funny, I think now that even extends into the high school ranks as well. So uh, they got some work to do for sure, but, um, you know, they, they believe that they have potential in that program as well. I think the beginning of next season would be huge um, for that kind of momentum that they hope to have. Joe Hoyt, Dallas Morning News. Follow him on Twitter. Read him. Joe, you doing well, man? Doing great, yeah. Um, you know, just uh, just trying to survive the heat here in Texas. You know, a little 115 heat index today. Woo! So if any <laughs> anyone coming from back 12 country, you know, maybe they should consider that as well in the summer. So Yeah, we'll stay out of the summer there. All right, Joe, I appreciate you, man. Uh, thanks for jumping on with us. Of course. Take care, John. All right, there he is. Joe Hoyt, Dallas Morning News. Uh, interesting day for me. I wrote about SMU and the boosters uh, this morning. And ended up on a phone call with uh, the commissioner of uh, SMU's home conference, uh, Mike Oresco, who is the uh, commissioner of the uh, All-American Conference. And uh, ended up just kind of talking to him about, you know, the lay of the land and SMU and the AAC. And keep in mind, um, you know, the AAC lost three schools to the Big 12 recently, including Houston. And, you know, they all opted out and then bought their way out. I found Michael Oresco, the commissioner of the AAC, to be rather refreshing. My conversation with him was not at all like the conversations I've had with some other conference commissioners who, uh, you know, are protecting their turf fiercely. He kind of just said, hey, I know who we are. You know, he said, you have to know who you are. And he said he supports his conference members, he supports, you know, them doing what's right for them. And he says uh, he doesn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, if they want to be in his conference, great. And if they don't, he said, uh, I applaud what they do for the conference, um, and I wish them well. And I really think it's very much a different conversation than the one Gloria Navarez at the Mountain West Conference is having with San Diego State right now. And I blame San Diego State, actually, for that one. Because... San Diego State is, you know, required by their contract with the Mountain West Conference to inform the Mountain West of their intention to leave the conference before they leave the conference. And then if they do that before June 30th, they owe $16.5 million. They do it after June 30th, they'd owe $34 million. So obviously they want to do it sooner rather than later. So instead of informing the Mountain West Conference, San Diego State came out and said, hey, you know what, we would like to... Uh, talk to you about our intention to leave the conference we'd like to ask you for 30 days grace period can you be lenient with us we'd like to ask you maybe if we can pay that 16.5 million in installments um, and this is just our notice uh, telling you that we might give you notice and the Mountain West Conference said no actually this is your notice we're accepting your notice and you know now you're on the clock 
And, you know, then San Diego State wrote, wrote a second letter to the Mountain West Conference and said, wait a minute, we did not intend to give you notice. We were just giving you notice that we might give you notice. This is like a Dr. Seuss book. And in the end, I kind of I side with the Mountain West Conference here because San Diego State, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, they look very eager. You know, they're, they're not doing a great negotiation here. They're going all in. They've seen one card. And they're going all in with the Mountain West. Like, you know, and the Mountain West Conference is going, okay, we accept your notice. They're not doing them any favors. Like, they're not here to help them get out of the conference. And, you know, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, they just look eager. If you don't, they look sloppy. Like, it's kind of a sloppy maneuver to give a letter and then have to write a subsequent letter saying, hey, we want out, and now we really want out. So I kind of am left wondering if uh, San Diego State has played all its cards here and whether or not this is going to affect their negotiation with the Pac-12 Conference, because I still believe that it is headed to a resolution. I had originally said June 30th because of the San Diego State deadline, but guess what the Aztecs just did? They removed the deadline. There is no deadline now. They're off the clock. The Pac-12 is off the clock. Pac-12 doesn't have to do anything before June 30th. And, in fact, it behooves them to wait until, like, July 1, July 2, July 3 to invite San Diego State because then San Diego State would have to, what, reapply for admission to the Mountain West Conference if they don't do the deal with the Pac-12. Like, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner a little bit here. I I still think this is going to get done. I think it's going to be San Diego State and SMU added to the conference I think they need 12 teams in the conference for the inventory for football in particular and basketball. I think they need the 4.1 million TV households between Dallas. Dallas has 3 million of them. And San Diego. And I think the Pac-12 dances on and lives to play another day. There's some others who don't believe so, but that's what I believe. That's what I'm being told. Leave it here. NFL is going to reinforce its gambling policy. NFL uh, reporting that it's going to redouble its efforts. How do you redouble your efforts? We're circling back. We're redoubling. That sounds like bad parenting. I'm going to say that the next time uh, the kids blow off when I say, hey, turn your lights out. It's time to go to bed. I'm going to tell Anna, I'm going to redouble my effort on this one. But the NFL is redoubling its efforts to reinforce the league's gambling policy. Um, apparently, it's uh, been sufficiently embarrassed by the rash of recent violations. All rookies not veterans because the veterans never would go for this this is how the players association gets it done okay uh nfl says we would like everybody to attend mandatory education sessions and the players association goes our guys don't do meetings that's how that conversation goes and then the nfl goes yeah but we publicly need to sell the idea that we're reinforcing we're redoubling our league gambling policy and the players association goes let me huddle with the veteran players and find out what they'll go for the Players Association comes back and goes, okay, here's what we can do. All rookies will now be required to attend mandatory education sessions, and uh, we'll also have league officials come and make in-person visits and emphasize and clarify you're not to be uh, doing prohibited gambling activities. You cannot bet on the NFL. You cannot gamble at your team facility. You cannot gamble while you're on the road at a team facility. You cannot gamble... When you're at the team hotel, you cannot have someone else bet for you. You cannot share inside information, and you're not to be in a sports book during the NFL playing season. Oh, and by the way, don't play fantasy football. Nah, you can't do that. That's the world that they live in. Stephen, will it work?
Um, no, I don't think it'll work. <laughs> I think when you have money involved in these type of things, there's always going to be people trying to uh, cheat the system a little bit as much as they can and trying to get as much money as they possibly can. Because it is, you know, if they have information and they know someone that's betting and they keep getting, you know, and they keep getting asked about it, because that, that's how gamblers are. They're going to keep asking you these questions. At some point, someone's going to say something or someone's going to do something. And I don't think it's going to stop it. I do think it's going to help. And I think it's. I think the fact that they're making it so clear and it's so out in the public now of what they can and cannot do, I think is great. Uh, but I don't think it solves all the problems. It solves a perception problem that they're not doing anything. And it says, hey, look what the NFL is doing. They're going to make rookies uh, not gamble on NFL games. Rookies, I, it's kind of like social media. Like, you know, my 20-year-old knows more about kind of Instagram, and she came up on she. This was part of her childhood. She grew up on social media. She understands it better than people of my age, right? You know, she understands it better than her grandparents. She understands it better than me. We're the ones that need, like, the social media primer course. Explain to me how the algorithm of Facebook and TikTok and Twitter, and, you know, we needed all that. And, you know, some of us still need it. Some of us still don't know how it works. But, you know, and we saw all the faux pas that were made by, like, older people in social media. Anthony Weiner's era of uh, Twitter and all that. Uh, you know, the mistakes were all made by people who didn't know what they were doing. It, it was, you know, people who had already arrived in, under the spotlight and didn't yet ha didn't have the knowledge to uh, use the technology or the tool, so to speak. Uh, maybe a bad use of words there. But it, in, the, in the end, the veteran players are probably those who need the most education and the most reminder because they did not grow up being told by the NCAA like today's generation is, hey, beware of fantasy football, beware of betting on the NFL. They didn't have it drilled into their head. Then it wasn't part of their ecosystem. Secondarily, the veteran players have more money. They have more disposable income. The rookies, you know, they have money maybe for the first time. But I, I think it's they're doing a better job, in my mind, of managing the perception problem. They're not actually managing the problem, which is, hey, you shouldn't be betting on an NFL game, and you shouldn't be wagering from a team facility. Now, <laughs> help me with this, Stephen. You can step outside the team facility across the street. You can you can wager, but if you do it inside the locker room, you're in trouble. Like, doesn't that seem weird to you? It, it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I think it does have to do with the fact that these, you know, these uh, you know, FanDuel, DraftKings, these type of companies, they see these young players making all this money, and it is disposable income. Like it, like you said, maybe it's the first time they have money, and what you know, what. It, what if you come from nothing and then you get a bunch of money, what are you going to do with all the money? And I think gambling is one of those things that, you know, these companies feast on maybe younger players yeah. um, that says, you know, they can lose this money and they'll be like, well, you know what? I'm still going to be in the NFL for so and so many years. I'll be fine. And I can bet, you know, $100,000 on a game and lose it and it's okay. And then all of a sudden it's not okay because then they lose all this money. So I think that's why they still have these rules of saying, you know what? We're going to be making money for you, NFL. NFL, you may be making money for us. It's a good, you know, business partnership and i think we can't allow it where we can't make it so players can't bet on the games because there's this money making opportunity brings us to our big splash it was a money making opportunity on the golf course this is the one thing you absolutely need to know today look 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 at it where down there the big splash 
Well, the U.S. Open was played over the holiday weekend. Uh, I'm slow getting to it, but I wasn't on air yesterday. Wyndham Clark walked off the winner, beating Rory McIlroy by a stroke at the Los Angeles Country Club. Former University of Oregon golfer uh, says he lost focus on hole number 15 of the U.S. Open, but he sure regained it. I lost my focus a little bit on the 15th hole, short par three, where I took a three-shot lead. And I kind of just zoned out and didn't really have a clear target. And I hit a terrible first shot. And um, so the, the hardest thing is really keeping your focus and trying to stay in the moment versus thinking about, man, I have a three shot lead. All I have to do is just par in or, you know, and we got this. So, um, but I would choose being the hunted versus the hunter anytime. Being the hunted versus the hunter. Wyndham Clark walked off the winner. He's a major winner. He beat Rory McIlroy by one stroke at the L.A. Country Club. Good story. Efforting Casey Martin, his coach at Oregon, trying to get him on the show today to talk about it. But it's such a good story. is you know. And, look, we had a rooting interest here in the state of Oregon. But i got to be honest with you, I was watching the leaderboard and watching McElroy and, of course, Ricky Fowler faded uh, in the last couple of days. And I was looking to see who's going to win this thing. And, I, I you know, I was, I was rooting for – for Wyndham Clark at the end. Steven, did you pay any attention to it? Yeah, I was watching a little bit on Father's Day. Uh, it was a good good little tournament, good little end there. And it's refreshing to hear a guy like Wyndham Clark win this tournament and, and come out and be so honest afterwards. Like, he thought he had it in the bag. And I think we all kind of thought it was over. And then he had the bad couple holes, and it became a tournament once again. So it was cool to hear him say that, like, you know what, I thought I had it basically, lost focus, and look what can happen. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think all in all, it's uh, all in all is a good uh, Father's Day little uh, gift for Wyndham Clark. I think uh, for those of us who like sports and like predictions or maybe unpredictable outcomes in sports, seeing uh, kind of that Ricky Fowler, Rory McIlroy, Wyndham Clark finish between Saturday and Sunday was really fascinating to watch. We'll talk more about the NBA draft. Uh, Sean Hyken of the Rose Garden Report is going to be joining us to tell us what he thinks the Blazers are going to do. Uh, we'll talk more about the Pac-12. Punch it audio still ahead. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT radio network. Do you play good cop, bad cop with your kids, Stephen? Do you and your wife do that? Is there a good cop? Is there a bad cop? Uh, no, I don't think we purposely do it. If I said to your kids, which one of your parents uh, is the nice one, which one is the... Uh, disciplinarian what are they gonna say that's tough um i think that good they, balance if it's tough yeah i think i think we do have a really good balance i would say that my wife is probably the bad cop she's the bad cop yeah and i'd be considered yeah. the good cop oh dad's not, like if they have something like i'm the go-to if they have something that they're they're going i don't think either one of our parents is going to go for this who do we bring it to? They bring it to me. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I'm thinking too. And you know, her as a coach, she's a little more disciplinarian. So yeah. uh, I, I think that they look at me as just being more fun and funny, and her as like the lovable. We love our mom. They told us the uh, seven-year-old and nine-year-old told us over the weekend. They said that uh, that uh, mom looks young but acts old, and dad looks old but acts young <laughs> i think i think it's their polite way or not polite way of saying that you know i'm the uh i'm the easygoing one <laughs> and is that your league a little bit is that what they're saying yeah. well they're saying that she looks young well that's given 
but they're saying she looks young. I, I'm aware of that when we go to Chipotle or one of those sushi restaurants that has everybody that sits on kind of where the chef is, and the uh, we'll eat, or we're going down the line in Chipotle, and they'll say, you know, do you want the tortilla? What kind of meat do you want? What kind of? And then we'll get to the register, and you can always see it on the person's face. I would, I would love to have that register job where it's your job to ascertain who is together, who's paying for what in the line. Because they get to me and Anna, and they'll always say to me, like, they'll kind of, like, if there's an Asian family in front of us, they definitely ring her order into their food. But if, uh, if they get to us and there's some indecision, they kind of eyeball it, and they'll either say, is this together? Or they'll just ring Anna up separately. <laughs> I always take that as like, hey, come on. And you're like, yeah, no, I got it. And they're like, are you sure you got it? Do you know her? Or are you just trying to be nice? I've said that. that we were at a sushi restaurant. I said, I, I'm actually going to pay for my wife today. <laughs> you know, I got her. You know, I think the kids it, saying that, though, is a, it's a nice compliment, right? Like, you're young at heart? I'll take it. it. Yeah, they say I act young. So, basically, I have the young spirit, and Anna is the disciplinarian. I think that's what they're trying to say, that she looks like she would be nice, but she's actually got a little bit of a stern side to her, and I look like I would be a hard ass, and they know I'm a softie. Well, it's the bald, it's the bald head. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. It's the brand, too. They grew yeah. up in the brand. The bald-faced truth, all of that. You know? they. It's the brand. You know, watch out, he bites. And then literally they're like, oh, he's not so bad. He's not so tough. Uh, we, we can deal with him. Um, yeah, I just I only bring that up because they, the kids, kids, kids will not mess around with that. Like kids, they, they are very perceptive when it comes to outsiders, when it comes to people. Like if a kid ever comes to you and says, I don't like like, you know, the family friend or the neighbor or the people down the street or I don't like the guy at the, at the store we go to. Pay attention to that. Your kids are perceptive as hell. They don't. They have that filter. I don't know what happens over time, but we lose it. We all start to get jaded, I guess. You know. But uh, I think kids are really, really perceptive. So they said that, and Anna, of course, was not happy about that. And I was like, "They said you look young." She says, "Yeah, but I don't want to be the hard ass." And I said, "But you are. That's this the balance we have to have. We, have, we have. Somebody has to be the good cop, bad cop. You can't have bad cop, bad cop. And if you have good cop, good cop, oh, heaven help your family. It's off the rails." On that note, let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's talk about to Nick Saban uh, about the balance of college football. He did an interview with Joel Klatt where he talked about the balance of college football. I'm always interested when somebody who has been a perennial winner is bellyaching, and here's Nick Saban. Punch it. I think you have to create a balance between how much do you take and how much do you give. Okay. Um, You know, we're giving people scholarships. We're creating name, image, and likeness opportunities. But what is their commitment? I mean, there's no place in the world where you don't have a contract. Uh, if you're going to receive benefits, you have a contract and an obligation to do a certain job. So when you can opt out, transfer, do whatever you want, whenever you want, I'm not sure the balance is quite right. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure the balance is quite right. 
as it pertains today in college football. Even I'm not sure the balance is I, I, for sure the balance hasn't been right in the last decade. 15, 20 years ago, was it right? Like the haves have dominated college football, and the have-nots have tried to overcome that. Like you know, now we're in this world where you can get all these benefits and you don't have to sign a contract. I don't know, man. Doesn't it seem doesn't seem like it's flipped 180. Like all the all the power was with the coaches and the schools, and now it seems like it's totally flipped, and all the power is with the players and the coaches and schools have no power. Like there has to be some type of middle ground. Yeah, I'll also look at, like, you know, are coaches any different? Because what happens? Coaches do what? Coaches go out, they negotiate a $10, $8, 10000000 million a year deal, and then when they get a better deal, they, they don't honor their contract? Like, come on. You know, nowhere in the world can you get the benefits and not have to sign a contract, Nick Saban says, who, by the way, walked out on a couple of coaching contracts in his career. <laughs> you know, like... Mario Cristobal had a, he was under contract at Oregon. There's such a thing as a buyout. I guess the contract protects you. I don't know. It, I, I, I don't want coaches to be the ones bellyaching about life not being fair. You know, that's the, that's the only thing. It reminds me of Peter Courtney, the great Peter Courtney, who came on this show. Gave me a hard time for saying, oh, Mario Cristobal is such a great guy. He came on this radio show after he left Oregon. He's like, he ditched Oregon. What are you doing, Kinzano? But I... I but- does it? Does yeah. it isn't, there, isn't there a, a, a thing where the players now just have too much power and they can just leave whenever they want and go to wherever they want, like, and have no expectations of staying? Doesn't that doesn't that re, isn't that going to be a problem in the near future? It is. I think it's going to be. I think that's why the NCAA hired Charlie Baker to be the president. I really think you you really point back to you know Mark Emmert, the former president of the NCAA. You should have seen all this coming, right? Fans saw it coming. Media members saw it coming. The fact that the NCAA was not prepared to kind of deal with this system, you know, did, I think the surprise is that they were caught by surprise by all this. You know, I think the next step is athletes will be deemed employees, and then the response from the NCAA should be, hey, we need to have you under salary and sign a contract then, and by the way, here's your obligations of your contract. And and it could be a multiple-year deal. But Nick Saban doesn't like anything that disrupts the ecosystem that he is dominating. Let's just be real about that. Josh Pate talking about Bo Nix and the Oregon Ducks. Are they for real? He thinks so. Punch it. People went from being sky high on him when he was in high school to all of a sudden, oh, he sucks, water through a garden hose. He's a college football quarterback, and I never really fluctuated all that much. I did think he was misused. Well, then he goes up to Oregon, and we went up there to watch him last year. Uh, the dude is like ear-to-ear smiling. He can't hide his excitement. Then he goes and just dominates against UCLA for the game we were there. And he's in the mix for the Heisman this upcoming season. In fact, his odds are right up there in the top five, not Pac-12-wise, nationally. And I don't know that we're close enough to the season where most of the college football public has realized that yet. Granted, we're in college football preview magazine season so more and more of you are starting to realize that you need to take Bo Nix seriously I don't know what else to tell you you should have been taking him seriously last year at this point if you laugh or scoff at the notion that Bo Nix could be a Heisman contender and Bo Nix could put Oregon in the playoff picture the joke's not on us the joke's on you look Bo Nix was in the Heisman picture through about seven weeks a year ago 
I thought after about the cow game of Oregon season, when Kenny Dillingham really opened the playbook and they were doing some you know fun things on the field, I thought, gosh, if they could finish this, he's in this conversation. I didn't think he'd win it, but I thought he could make a run at getting to the downtown athletic club as a finalist. Oregon's back in this position because Bo Nix is back. It is the biggest advantage that Dan Lanning has outside of having Phil Knight in the Oregon brand. He's got his quarterback back. That's that's a worry and a concern that Oregon State, you know, Oregon State's trying to figure out who should play quarterback. You know, there's about eight schools in the Pac-12 who think they have a good quarterback, but, you know, there are only about three or four or five that, you know, know they have their guy. And, you know, outside of Utah, and yeah, I think there's even a question with, with Cam Rising at Utah. And Caleb Williams at USC is slam dunk. Michael Penix Jr. at Washington is, is easy pick. Um, I think Jaden Delore at Arizona, he's their guy. I think Washington State's even got questions about Cam Ward, even though they're going to say he's their guy. They've got a freshman who's pretty good. But Bo Nix, yeah. I'm taking him seriously. I don't know what Josh Pate's talking about. Is, Who is it? Is there, a, is there a concern to you with Kenny Dillingham gone and the new Will Stein offense coordinator there? Is, is there any concern that there could be a, a regression a little bit out of, out of Bo Nix this next season? There, Yeah, there is, but I don't see it with his – I mean, there's a possibility for anything to happen. He could get hurt and, you know, knock on wood in week two, right? You know, we don't know. But he's got great receivers. This group of receivers is fantastic. I think Will Stein, in a vacuum, without Bo Nix, I'd have questions like, hey, what's Oregon going to be on offense? But I actually think, you know, Will Stein's got huge advantage having Bo Nix back. So I don't think regression, not with that pack of receivers. Really, it can't happen that way. There could be a regression on defense where, you know, they didn't have any identity a year ago. they got to be better there. Let's talk about Paul Feinbaum. He says the Pac-12 is done. It's over. It's finished. Here is the mouthpiece of the SEC, Paul Feinbaum. Punch it. Will the Pac-12 be in existence in 2026 when we kind of start the world over in college football? I do not believe so. I, I don't know how it can, Greg, uh, because it, 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 it's, it's, the situation is so fragile right now. The leadership is better than it was, but it's still, it's still not very good. And, you know, I, I, I could give the new commissioner, uh, Klyaikov, uh, a pass maybe a year, year and a half ago, because his predecessor uh, literally ran this thing into the ground. But he's had enough time. And I think so far uh, you have to give him a failing grade. And ultimately, as much as big conferences don't really want to expand at the moment, I think they'll be forced to take – the, the, the cream of the crop out there, whether it, it's it's the Pac-10, excuse me, whether it's the Big Ten going after the the, the Northwest schools, whether it's Colorado or, or Arizona or somebody else deciding to go to the Big the Big 12. I, I do not believe the Pac-12 can exist. Yeah, he does not believe it can exist because the SEC, what do they want? They want a two-team conference. They want the SEC, two-team college football, they want 32 teams in the SEC. They want 32 teams in the Big Ten. I don't believe he gave George Klyovkov a passing grade a year and a half ago because here's Paul Feinbaum just a year ago. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at the cluelessness that this guy continues to exhibit. I mean, he got completely embarrassed uh, and, and, and shaken down uh, when the Big Ten uh, came in and swiped two teams. 
And then he went in high. He went in the witness protection for a month, and they came out with that statement. There's there's nothing to back that up. I mean, the only thing going for the Pac-12 right now is the fact that the the, the playoff. I mean, overall, from an from a holding on to everybody is is the fact that the Pac the, the, the CFP is going to expand to 12. Had they had they not decided not to do that, then I think there would already be mass defection. But the Big Ten is still undecided on where it wants to go. I mean, clearly they want Notre Dame, and, and that decision is, is permanently, not permanently, but it's, it's on hold for the time being. But there's no way you can make that statement when we know Washington and, and Oregon and others perhaps have already made contact with the Big Ten about coming their way. Feinbaum was wrong in September. I think he's wrong in June. Pac-12 is closing in on a meteorites deal. I feel bad having to tell you this because I think you know it as a listener. You got a lot of national media members who aren't talking to people in the room, who don't really know. Paul Feinbaum's included in them. And him to say the Pac-12 would not be in existence in 2026, okay. Let's, uh, let's, let's see what happens. Let's see this play out. Because Oregon, he had Oregon and Washington gone. He had Notre Dame going to the Big Ten. Uh-oh. Notre Dame staying independent. Oregon and Washington not going anywhere. I, I just, I think it's, it's beyond sad that you've got media members nationally and media members, uh, you know, on the platform that has the spotlight at ESPN crowing from the mountaintops about stuff they don't know. I would just say stay in your lane. If you don't know, don't talk about it. You don't hear me talking about Alabama's backup left tackle or Georgia's backup running back or what LSU's going to do in week three because guess what? I don't know. And I don't fashion myself an expert on things I don't know. Will the Pac-12 be in existence in 2026? Paul Feinbaum says no. I think he's hoping because what? It would be great for the SEC to have all the food and all the money for itself. But I guess the college football playoff expansion flies in the face of that. Victor Wimbanyama. He says he tries to live free. He doesn't feel pressure. Do you believe Wimby? He's going to be the number one pick on Thursday. Here he is. Punch it. If people did a create a player on 2K, or like if you asked a six-year-old to draw a sketch of a basketball player, right? It would They would look like you, and they would have all the skill sets you have. Do you feel pressure around that, that notion? No, no you know, I, I don't feel any like pressure on my shoulders or what. Uh, and I think the reason is because I like uh, I try to live free. I, I, I'm sort of be like a free minor at all times. And the way I play is just the way I, want, I truly want to play, you know, and I've wanted to play my whole life. So it's just, you know, this is me. And I'm trying to show my true personality on the court and just be myself. He's been struggling a little bit on the court. Any concerns about Wemby? Like, I still think he's easily a no-brainer number one pick, Stephen. But any concerns with him turning the ball over lately, not shooting as well lately? No, I don't really have too many concerns. The one concern I would have is if he is very skinny. He's seven foot four, seven foot five. We've seen lots of tall, skinny guys get hurt before in the NBA. Uh, but his body does look like it can get bigger and get bulkier. I mean, if you remember back in the day, LaMarcus Aldridge, very skinny when he came to Portland, got really you know jacked and big when he was gone. Same with Giannis. Giannis was very skinny when he went to Milwaukee. Now he's a physical freak. Not saying that Wimbanyama is going to do that, 
but he does need to gain some type of weight. There's, there's, there's always that injury concern, but I think as long as he stays healthy, John, I have no concerns that he won't at least be a really good NBA player. Like, I think that's kind of the, the, the floor for him is just like a really good NBA player because there's no one really like him and he has a lot of good instincts on the court. So I, I don't have any concerns. I think he's ending up in the right spot with Greg Popovich, too. I mean, what a blessing for him to be picked where he is because, you know, you worry over the years. You see these garbage teams that pick at the top of the draft all the time, and you go, oh, gosh, you know, what, what are these teams going to do to this kind of talent? Well, think of the second pick. You know, the Hornets, bad franchise. Blazers, third, bad franchise. Rockets, yeah. fourth, bad franchise. Pistons, fifth, bad franchise. Like, he did. I think it's – we're not talking about that enough of how lucky Wimbanyama is to go to the Spurs and is a Hall of Fame coach like he's that good the usa coach like i think it's such a good spot for him and it's the best case scenario for him finally uh i'm gonna try here rosemary scapiccio who is the lawyer for jack jones now jack jones had two guns in his bag at the logan airport and uh he has been uh obviously uh penalized for that and uh you know scrutinized for that and you know uh nine gun charges but uh, uh, the Patriots are not happy. But here's his attorney. Punch it. Mr. Jones did exactly what anyone else in his situation would have done. They, he, he cooperated with the police. He, he, he was arrested. He promised to be here. He showed up here this morning. Um, he was polite to the police. He did nothing that, that, would, uh, that would suggest that he was in any way trying to act as a thug or wanted uh, or want to be a gang member. That's made up from, from social media, and that needs to stop. He's a young black man charged with a crime. Happens all the time. Let's just deal with the actual facts. And the facts of this case are that they found two guns in, in a carry-on bag that they said was his. He had no intention of bringing any guns into that, into that Logan Airport that day. He had no intention of bringing any guns onto an airport that day. And, and I, I expect that the evidence is going to show that he had no knowledge of what was going on. Any other questions? So the Jones was charged with two counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. He was charged with carrying a loaded firearm. He was charged with possession of a large capacity magazine. He was charged with possession of ammunition without a firearm identification card. His lawyer said he was, quote, unquote, almost fired by the Patriots, defensive back for the Patriots. But uh, fourth round pick in the last year draft, played in 13 games, former USC player, by the way, his playing time at USC ended after two seasons in 2018 due to academic issues. Later that year, he was accused of burglarizing a Panda Express, got 45 days of house arrest, transferred to Arizona State, uh, where he was suspended for most of the 2020 season for a violation of team rules. Now, to the, uh, to the attorney in this case, I would offer um, Mr. Jones is doing a good job of portraying himself. Don't let the facts stand in the way of a good story. Leave it here. Sean Hyken coming up. We'll talk about what the Blazers are going to do next in the draft. Well, the website Rose Garden Report has you covered for all things Trailblazers. Sean Hyken, who's covered the NBA and the Blazers for years, is the editor and publisher of Rose Garden Report. You should give it a look. I subscribe. You should as well. Hyken joining us now. Kind enough to join us. It is a frantic draft week. I imagine you have multiple screens in front of you. You're working the phones all day, Hyken. Uh, what's the scene right now as you cover this team? Dude, this week and the week leading up to the trade deadline are my two least favorite weeks of the year just because there's so much 
stuff that you have to sift through. Like you hear so much stuff. They have so much stuff coming at you from all directions. I, you know, I'll, 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 yesterday, just to give you a little, just an example from my life, yesterday morning I woke up and I got a text from my dad saying that he heard about a Blazers rumor that he wanted to know, like, if it was anything I heard anything about. It. And he sent it to me. And it was not any actual reporting. It was just some fake trade that somebody made up that then got aggregated and somehow yep. ended up on his Facebook news feed. So you just yep. kind of you just kind of get hit with so much stuff and you have to, you know, be able to sort through what's real and what's not and figure out how to, you know, react to what needs to be reacted to and ignore the stuff that doesn't need to be reacted to. Yeah. And so how do you discern that? Like, you know, I, I always, I told people last week, there's going to be smoke and smoke and smoke in the lead up to the draft, but Heiken, how do you know what to really pay attention to and what not to pay attention to? Whenever something gets reported, you have to think about why did this get out? Who does it benefit that this got out? You know, what what would be the purpose of somebody wanting this to get out? Like, and then you have to think, you know, you know, you, you're kind of you're kind of seeing it from all directions, and uh, you know, you know, you, you'll see, you know, certain reports that like, uh, you know, that, that like these this team has, you know, there's absolutely no chance this guy is available, and then other you know, reports saying there's no chance this guy, like usually, usually the truth is somewhere in the middle on a lot of this stuff. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, is pretty pretty rock solid, but it's just, you have, you have to, as a consumer, which even though I'm in it and I'm, you know, part of it, I still am a consumer. You still have to be able to, I mean, this is not just true in sports. This is also true and especially even more important in like the political world and the news world and, you know, whatever else. But when something gets reported, you have to be able to discern, okay, why is this out there and who wants this out there? and then kind of go from there. All right, let's go to Chris Haynes then right out of the gate. We all know he's in Camp Lillard. He's tight with Dame. He's close with Aaron Goodwin, Damian's agent. I want to play something for you and our listeners. I believe the Miami Heat feel like there's hope. Like there's people across the league that believe this is the offseason that Dame could potentially request out. And that's all going to be dependent on, well, I think a large factor of that is going to be what the Portland Trailblazers decide to do with the number three pick. All right, so Haynes pointing out Miami. I, I read that, Sean, as Aaron Goodwood wants that out there. I think part of it is maybe that, and the other part of it, I, I maybe Miami also feels like they, you know, that they that they feel like they have a shot, whether that's true or not, if, that were, to, if it were to come to that, I don't know, but, I, you know, I... I believe that the Heat feel like they would have a shot if it were to come to that. But I mean, the truth the truth is, I you know, I, nobody's really breaking any news here. Dame has made it very clear that he's not really interested in more kids. Like he wants a veteran team, and you know, the, the, it, you know, he wants a team that's going to be able to contend. And you know, the the position that Joe Cronin is in right now is. He has an opportunity to draft either Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, who are two prospects that most people think would go number one overall in those drafts that don't have Victor Wembanyama in them. So it's a pretty valuable pick, especially with the new CBA where, you know, there's that second apron, the new luxury tax structure that kicks in. So having somebody who, especially as as high as the third pick, who could be a potential star on a cost-controlled contract, makes it a lot easier to fill out the rest of the roster. So lottery picks like that have never been more valuable than they are right now. And so as a result of that, Joe Cronin can't really afford to just like make a bad deal and, you know, give away this pick just for any veteran that's going to, you know, be a short-term fix, but you know, maybe is going to set the franchise back in the long term. But then if you use the pick and don't trade it, even if genuinely the, you tried to get, you know, somebody that 
Dame would consider a needle mover and there was just no deal out there, then are you going to be able to go back to Dame and say, hey, look, we tried, but you're going to have to, you know, if you, you know, you, you say you want to stay here, you're going to have to rock with us if you, you know, with this pick. And, you know, we'll try to get veterans other ways. I think Joe feels like there is other ways, you know, there are other ways, like maybe you trade Anthony Simon plus the 23rd pick plus future picks and try to get somebody that way uh, in order to add talent. I think they feel like it's not just a binary thing of you trade the pick or you have to trade Dane. But it's, you know, it's a question of, you know, does everybody else feel that way too? You know, you talk about Cronin a little bit. I know, you know, you've talked with him. You've seen him since he's been hired. Do you get the sense this is his draft? Will he be dealing and uh, working in conjunction with Burt Cold or somebody else? What's your read on how the pick will be made? I haven't heard anything to suggest that anybody but Joe Cronin has the final call on this stuff. I will say that Burt has been at the Blazers practice facility for the last month for the Blazers draft workouts, but that's, that's not out of the ordinary. Like, especially when you have a lottery pick this high, you want everybody in the organization, whether it be someone from the ownership level like that, or Dwayne Hankins, who is the president of business operations. He's been there for a lot of that stuff. Damian Lillard actually has, you know, bringing him up. He was there for their Scoot Henderson workout, their Brandon Miller workout, all their other, you know, workouts of potential lottery picks. I don't think it's necessarily an indication of anything that, you know, all of the important people in the organization are there, but I have not heard anything that would make me think that it's anybody but Joe making the final call. Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller, you uh, have been there for both workouts and interviews. Uh, your takeaways, if the Blazers had the, you know, their druthers, they had their pick of either one of those guys, who should they pick between those two? They'll likely just take who falls to them, but who sh- who should they want? Well, they're in the position where they kind of have that decision made for them because whatever Charlotte does, then, you know, I do, I do know that they, that in their eyes and also in the eyes of most people around the league, like there is a pretty significant gap between, you know, obviously Victor Wembanyama is in his, in his own tier. Like you take him off the board and there's no drama at all about what San Antonio is going to do at number one. But most people around the league feel that Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller roughly are equivalent level of talents and prospects and you know there's maybe some gms that prefer one over the other other gms that prefer one over the the other one but it's those two in a tier for most teams and then you know below that you get to like the twins and cam whitmore and some of the other uh prospects in the draft so really the blazers have a pretty easy call to make once you know once charlotte does whatever charlotte's going to do everything i've heard right now is that they is that charlotte really likes brandon miller but if you remember a year ago going into the draft, it was pretty much seen as a lock that Jabari Smith Jr. was going to go number one. And then the night before the draft, the betting lines moved suddenly. And now everybody's saying, oh, Paolo Bancaro is going to go number one. So it, you, you, it's not really settled until it's on the, you know, until they're on the clock. Certainly if you're planning on keeping the pick while also not trading Dame and trying to still contend, you would think that Brandon Miller is a little bit of a cleaner fit positionally because Scoot Henderson is also a six foot two point guard. And obviously he's a different kind of player than Dame. Like he's not as much of like an outside shooter. He's more of an attacker and, you know, you know, he's diff- physically, he's kind of a different build than Dame. So it's not as much of like a, of a redundancy as like the Dame CJ stuff or the Dame Simon stuff, but it's still kind of an awkward positional fit. So uh, I think from a fit perspective, they might, not be that upset if Brandon Miller is there, but 
also, you know, some of the teams that I've heard that want to move up, a lot of them want Scoot, so maybe you get better trade offers if Scoot is there. I don't know. It's, there's, there's, there's still so many moving parts, and nothing is going to get decided one way or the other until they're actually off the clock. Sean Hyken with us, Rose Garden Report. Uh, what do they do at 23 and 43? Do they keep those picks? Do they trade those picks? Let's just assume they pick at three. What do they do with those other two picks? I think the idea is you would like, especially if you were able to get something done with the third pick as far as a trade, you would like to trade those other picks for more, you know, veteran help. I don't, I don't think they're going to come away from draft night having made zero draft picks because even if you do end up, you know, getting you know more veteran talent on the roster like they want to do around Dane, you still want to have, especially like I was saying earlier with the new CBA and how cost prohibitive a lot of the stuff is on the high ends of the roster. You want to have at least one or two guys on you know the lower end contracts and the rookie scale deals you know to be able to fill out the roster in that way i think it's probably the most if you're asking me which of the draft picks that they have i think is the most likely to be moved i think it's probably 23 because there are teams you know they think i think people view this draft as pretty deep with like good rotation players and so if you're trying to you know add veterans maybe not at the high end of the kind of stuff that you might potentially be able to get with a third pick but just kind of other you know guys who could be good contributors i think that 23rd pick is going to have some value around the league so that's i think that's the pick that if you're asking me which one i think is the most likely to be moved it's probably that one all right before i let you go rest of the roster what happens with the rest of this roster uh, Chauncey Billups doesn't seem to appreciate the talent of your uh, Yusuf Nurkic. Is Nurk gone? What happens to the rest of this team? The only guy that's completely off the table in trade talks, as far as I know, is Shaden Sharp. I think they are very, they very much whether they whether they keep building around Dame or eventually decide to rebuild and go in the other direction. That's the guy that I can say pretty confidently is not going to be traded anytime soon. I think they know that. Especially with you know if they end up getting something done with a star for you know for a star of the of the caliber that they are trying to get, I think either Simons or Nurkic is going to have to be included for salary matching purposes. So I think those two are pretty likely to be gone. I do think it's still pretty you know much decided that Jeremy Grant is going to be re-signed pretty quickly into free agency. I think Matisse Seibel, who they picked up at the trade deadline, is going to be back too. He's a restricted free agent. I would expect him to also be back whichever direction they go. Some of the other guys kind of at the end of the bench or, you know, some of the other, you know, rotation guys, I would expect that they're going to maybe look to get a little bit more experienced and, you know, have, have a little bit fewer. I think, I think in an ideal world for Joe Cronin, this is just, you know, this is, you know, totally pie in the sky. I have no idea what's realistic and what's not. I think he would love to make the third pick and keep it and use other stuff to be, you know, enough to be able to make other moves and other upgrades. Yep. And then, you know, and get, you know, more better, more veteran talent. And then you have two guys in Shaden Sharp and whichever Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, they take three uh, that you are sort of your developmental project, but you don't have like five or six guys like that, like, like they kind of had this year that did, which is why a lot of the season went sideways. So I don't know. There's a whole lot up in the air. I think everything besides Shaden Sharp is on the table as far as trying to make upgrades and, uh, you know, if I, I as of as of right now, I they are operating as though they're prepared to make the draft pick, but obviously that's you know a lot can change between now and forty eight hours from now. Yeah, I think they pick they make the pick. Hiking, make sure you hydrate and get some rest. You got a big couple of days in front of you. Thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, man. There he is, Rose Garden Report. Sean Hiking with us. Uh, here's the Blazers' mo. 
Okay. Um, first of all, I, I've got I've got reasonable doubt. Let's just say you're a jury. You got reasonable doubt. You know, we all understand reasonable doubt. I have reasonable doubt that Joe Cronin's making the pick. Okay. I have reasonable doubt. Bert Cold being there at all the workouts wouldn't normally alarm me, but he's got no big boss over his shoulder telling him, hey, Bert, you don't know basketball. And I think Bert's rather enjoying being the guy in charge. So I have reasonable doubt that Joe Cronin's acting with autonomy here. And I don't think it's fair to Joe Cronin. Like, if he's not making the pick, we should all know it. But, you know, I think Blazers' ownership is going to hold this team back like an anchor until they uh, satisfy or, or rectify that situation. I, I got some thoughts on Major League Baseball to Portland coming up. Uh, you know, make no small plans. Blazers, make no small plans. You know, if you're rebuilding, get busy living, you know? Like, you know, they told us in Shawshank Redemption, get busy living, get busy dying. Pretty simple. Leave it here. Stephen and I having a conversation off air that I'd like to bring on air. Stephen, you okay with this? <laughs> yeah, okay perfect. I'm 100%. Okay. So we're talking about the Blazers' management structure, ownership, general manager, coach. I am a big believer that people who have confidence in themselves – uh, leaders who have confidence surround themselves with smart people who will challenge their ideas. In fact, I was talking to somebody just over the weekend who was an executive at Apple, and he had been in meetings with uh, Tim Cook, the uh, CEO of Apple, and says uh, the guy was just an incredible leader, wanted engineers and smart people around him to constantly be challenging uh, him and challenging his ideas and bringing new ideas to the table. And uh, I'll even go back to University of Oregon men's basketball years ago. Ernie Kent was the basketball coach, really good recruiter, really polished guy to have out front, but um, did not surround himself with great assistant coaches, uh, except for maybe um, you know, one time he had uh, a defensive assistant, uh, Fred, who was uh, on that staff that was uh, a, a fantastic defensive assistant but the minute that coach started getting attention Ernie kind of soured on him and he just never really hired great coaches around him and Mike Dunlap was a guy he brought in who was a really smart division two coach but Dunlap had a hard time working with Ernie because it it just didn't work and so I've always looked at leaders and who they surround themselves with like I like to know I like to I profess to be the dumbest guy on the show like you know we took the Mensa test years ago and I was delighted when, you know, I missed Mensa by one raw point, one question. Otherwise, I'm the I'm actually the dumbest. No, I'm the smartest guy, not in Mensa. How about that? Like, I'm happy about that. But we had two other members of our staff at the time who qualified for Mensa. Like, and one was in the top 1%. And I immediately told her, I said, get out of here. You're wasting your time on this radio show. Go. Go with it. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, ultimately, you want to see leaders hire smart people. Hire good people. Hire competent people and let them go work. Let them challenge you. Let them bring great ideas to, your, to the room. And let it be this Petri dish of, 
of uh, creative expression and uh, excellence and challenge it. And, and what you get in those rooms, and we've all been in those rooms where it's very collaborative and you get smart people and they're all working well together and you, you walk away and you go, wow, like that wasn't a normal meeting. And we've also been in meetings where it's uh, clear that there's an imbalance and that there's some freeloaders in the room who are just kind of skating along, not really offering anything, don't really have anything to bring to the conversation, um, you know, don't really, um, don't really sort of, uh, you know, help the room blossom, so to speak. Now, I ask you, I challenge you as a listener to this show to apply those principles maybe to your own workplace. Ask yourself, you know, if you run a meeting, for example, on a Tuesday and you're in this and you're in said meeting and, you know, you, you kind of go around and you're getting great ideas and everybody's challenging and, and you come away going, gosh, we made each other better. Or, we, or that meeting, uh, you know, really was productive because the people who were involved and engaged in it were all competent. They were all qualified. They all think for themselves. There was no group think going on. People were excited to bring their own ideas to the table. And, and you know, and maybe, maybe, you know, you had somebody in the room who offered an idea that changed your viewpoint. Or you had somebody in the room who uh, offered you an idea that made you know your made you sort of dig in more with what you believed previously and sort of affirmed the position that you were in, uh, really uh, in the beginning. So I ask you to apply that to your own life, and then let's apply it to Trailblazers Inc. Let's apply it to the management structure of the Portland Trailblazers, including ownership, trustee Jody Allen. The vice chair, Bert Cold, the coach, Chauncey Billups, and the general manager, Joe Cronin, and his staff. Okay? So you have those entities that are in the room on draft day now, and not even on draft day, in the run-up to the draft. And so here's the thing. I keep coming back to this. I feel like Joe Cronin isn't truly a general manager. Like, he's got the title general manager. But, but he's got Burt Cold sitting on his shoulder, the vice chair of the team, who really doesn't know basketball. He, he, Burt Cold does not know basketball. He doesn't know it. I've had multiple general managers who have worked for the Trailblazers who have told me that guy doesn't know a damn thing about basketball, and unfortunately he's in Paul Allen's ear. Now, Paul Allen, may he rest in peace, uh, he handed the keys to the organization to Burt Cold, who is now essentially... Uh, you know, involved in this decision. Now, a good leader would come into this and go, I'm going to hire the best damn GM in the world, and I'm going to let that guy go work. That's what a really good leader would do. That's If, if Burt Cold were a fantastic, inspiring leader, as the vice chair of the Trailblazers, he would acknowledge, hey, I don't know that much about basketball, but um, I want what's best for this team, so I'm going to hire a dynamite, experienced general manager. It's not what he did when he had the opportunity to hire a GM. What did he do? He instead hired a former intern who rose up to become general manager, Joe Cronin. And I'm left thinking about that, going, wait a minute. Um, if you're a Blazer fan, do you realize that you don't really have a true GM? He's got limited autonomy. And he doesn't know basketball. And then beyond that, you got Burt not only promoting Joe Cronin, but he had Neil Olshay as one of his final acts as Trailblazers general manager of, of yesteryear, um, hiring Chauncey Billups as the head coach, a guy who's got no previous head coaching experience. Why did he do that? 
Well, because bad leaders hire weak people. Bad leaders hire people who are inexperienced and not quite ready for the job. Why? Because they want to run the show without running the show. And so I believe Neil Olshay wanted some uh, wanted some input with his new head coach on who was going to get the playing time, and also wanted to be able to say, "Hey, look, uh, it ain't me. We got a, we got a head coaching problem uh, again. You know, he's going to be able. To, he blamed Terry Stotts. He was going to blame Chauncey Billups. And you got Bert Cold, who doesn't know basketball, promoting Joe Cronin, but not really, because I I fear Stephen. I'm going to let you go now. I fear that come draft day." It's going to be Burt Cold making this decision, not Joe Cronin. And I've been critical of this, and they didn't interview anybody for the GM job. Joe Cronin just was given the job. They didn't interview anybody. And I had heard that there was uh, numerous people that were interested in the job, including really good GMs that are with other teams right now that were interested in the Blazer job. Nobody reached out to them. And that was a mistake from the start. And I said this the other week, John. I said... I think the ownership thing with Jody Allen and Burt Colt is a little overrated, and I, I still think it's a little overrated that it's overblown, that it's the end-all, be-all. But as time goes on, and you just keep get pounding your head of all the mistakes that have been made over the past few seasons, I just I have no faith right now in the Portland Trailblazers making the right decision. Now, what is the right decision? I don't know exactly. I can tell you what I think is the right decision, and that's to draft a player at three. That's to go with the, with the youth movement. That's to explore trading Damian Lillard. Doesn't mean you trade him, but you got to explore it. I have no faith in any of this. It's going to happen. And I, I feel like they're not going to be prepared and it's going to come up and sneak up on them. And then they're going to be run into a, you know, into a haste decision that ends up costing the Blazers, not only next season, but the season after that, the season after that and into the future. So I, when you keep talking about, you know, Burt Cold making the decision for Joe Cronin, it very may very possibly happen. And that would be the worst case scenario for Blazer fans. But I want to hold hope. I want to hold faith. I want to hold hope that it's going to happen. But man, John, as time goes on, you uh, you're making convincing arguments that this management well, thing is 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 worse than I actually am portraying it as. Like I know well, it's bad. It could be worse. It, it's here's the thing that you have to have peace with. The problem doesn't come at number three because you know we all know there are three really good players in this draft. There's one sensational prospect, and then two. Really good players that, it, you know, should be top three picks. Like, the top three picks are pretty much decided. So if the Blazers stay where they are, they can't really screw it up. Like, if they were sitting in the two position, you could have a bigger concern. They're sitting in the three position. They're going to get the third player in the draft. So you have to feel good about that. The problem, though, with the big picture is, is you know, you have a vice chair of the team in Burt Cold who hired a general manager who's not ready. Okay? You have a codependent situation going on with your vice chairman who's acting like an owner and his general manager who has been promoted and i feel bad for joe cronin because he is caught in a there's no other way to describe it he's in a codependent relationship with his de facto owner pseudo owner who wants to be wannabe owner like you look at the blazers and and i don't blame you i've said this before they have a wannabe owner they got a wannabe general manager they have a wannabe coach like how does that work? Imagine that that important a position and not interviewing anybody. Like that's just would, crazy yeah. to me. Would you buy stock in this company that I'm describing? You would not. Our five at five is coming up. I may come off the rails in this next segment. I don't like crows. Do you like crows? I don't like crows. I don't like them for obvious reasons. I uh, I was an English literature major in college. Edgar Allan Poe. You know, he didn't like crows. He always had them around. 
things that were uh, that were not going to go well. I walked out of the house today. Had this crow kind of barking at me. Do crows bark? It's yapping at me. I read a story last year. I think we talked about it on the show. Crows have great memories. Maybe the crow remembered me scowling at it last year. I don't know. I don't like crows. I don't. I don't know why. I uh, feel the need to tell you that. Maybe I should. Uh, next time I see a crow, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Is it bad? La- Wait, I told the whole story about Blue Jays. Blue Jays gone. Now I have crows. Got a crow problem. Uh, we're going to do the five at five. And uh, I'm going to. Should I wear a blindfold for this, Stephen? Is that, you know, are we at the point where I'm getting so good at this five at five I could put a blindfold on? Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, might do that. Yeah, and I'm not gonna say I'm gonna do bad things to crows because like there might be like some pro crow listener. <laughs> are there such a thing as people who are like, "Hey, leave the crows alone, man"? Oh, definitely, definitely. Really? Peta? I mean, Peta would be not be happy with you. I scowl at crows because the crows they chase away the good bird. They're just not a. It's not a pleasant sounding bird. It's not a pleasant looking bird. Bad omen. Crows are associated with death and mayhem and, you know, Hitchcock movies. I mean, aren't aren't just all birds just kind of, kind of not, not scary, scary is the wrong word, but like, <laughs> they're not, I don't know. They don't, they don't bring positivity to my life. I'll all say right. that. Uh, you know what I should do? I, I should, why do I need to be blindfolded? This is radio, you know? I said earlier I would blindfold myself. It's so difficult. It's not like I'm on a high wire doing radio here. I'm not holding a jackhammer. I always have people that are like, man, I don't know how you do it. You three hours of radio a day. I could never do that. I'm like, you don't talk for during your day? You know, like I had people when I first started out in radio 17 years ago who were like, the people don't understand. It's so difficult. It's so hard. This is such a challenging job. I think that's something radio people tell you so that they have job security. Anybody can talk. It's about making it sensical. So I am going to put a blindfold on. As I do this, uh, do this portion of the five at five, just to prove how damn easy it is. Stephen, are you ready? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. The five at five. The number one story, as Stephen sees it, is we talked about this a little bit, John. The NFL executives—they held a conference call today with reporters to detail how they are educating players about league policies when it pertains to gambling. NFL Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer Sabrina Peril. She uh, she oversaw a team that has traveled to 14 different teams this spring. Six more are scheduled to lend advice and answer questions on the policy. Some of the big take uh, points taken away from it. Don't bet on the NFL. Don't gamble at your team facility while traveling for a road game or staying at a team hotel. Don't let someone bet for you. Don't share team inside information. Don't enter a sports book during the NFL season. And don't play daily fantasy football course this comes off the heels of the lions commanders and colts all having problems with players betting and gambling this offseason i i get mad at stuff like this because uh you know my bs meter is sky high i told somebody today i'm in the business of like you know recognizing bs when i see it okay this this story's got some got some nonsense in it the nfl wants you and i to believe that they're taking gambling seriously they want us to believe they're cracking down on it you know they're really gonna you know if if they're gonna slap on the wrist here they're gonna leave a mark right they're gonna leave a hand mark on the wrist of the nfl players who are gambling but the truth is it's just a hand mark 
right? They're, they're just slapping them on the wrist. There is no real teeth to this. It is designed, this whole thing, this whole story is designed to give us the illusion, the perception that they are cracking down on gambling and reminding players that, hey, you're not supposed to gamble. The truth is the players know they're not supposed to gamble, and the only re- way that players are going to pay attention is, you know, you got to start suspending people or banning people. Serious offenses, serious consequences, but the problem is that the NFL is, this is the dirty secret, we all know it, the NFL's in bed with the gambling entities, the NFL's in bed with fantasy football, the NFL is very much focused on the revenue that is generated from fantasy football and sports gambling, and they don't want their gambling partners and their sponsors to be hurt by this, so they're just going to leave a little mark on the wrist of the NFL Players Association, just going to little slap on the wrist, little hand mark left behind. The truth is that you shouldn't be gambling on NFL games. The whole rule about being in a facility, out of a facility is nonsense. Just don't bet on NFL games. Don't be in a sports book if you're an NFL player. And if you get caught betting on an NFL game or being in a sports book, you are banned. You're over. You're done. There's no slap. There's no hand mark here. It's a serious consequence. Number yeah. two story. Yeah. But uh, real quick, doesn't those sports books want to be getting their money when they're losing these bets, and then they don't make money right. with the NFL, so they can't do that, John. Yeah, Come on. And they, be, can't, yeah. they can't make it. A, they can't attach a negative association to gambling because it's like it would be like them saying, hey, you shouldn't be drinking. You shouldn't be drinking so much alcohol. They have beer sponsors. They can't say that. So, you know, here you go. Number two. Number two, the... The Stockton Kings, the Sacramento Kings G League affiliate, they have made history as Lindsey Harding. She has been announced as the new head coach. And Anjali Ranadive is the new general manager, which is the first time in G League history that two women will lead an affiliate team. Harding, she spent four seasons as assistant coach with the Kings. She was also the first pick back in 2007 of the WNBA draft. And Anjali Ranadive is the daughter of Kings owner Vivek Ranadive and was the Stockton Kings assistant general manager last season. Before that, she previously worked in the King's Social Responsibility Department as an intern for the Warriors. And before that, in sports, Anjali was actually a recording artist and songwriter in Los Angeles. Uh, But I thought it was pretty interesting that the owner's daughter is now the general manager after trying to be a singer and a song recorder, a recording artist. Uh, She is now the general manager. What are you saying here? What do you say? I don't, I mean... (laughs) I, it just it seems like she's very lucky that yeah. she's the daughter of the owner of yeah. the Sacramento Kings, and now she's the general manager of a G League team. This is only slightly better than, like, if it turned out the owner was having an affair and made his mistress the head coach of the WNBA team. Like, that would that would be the only thing that could – like, this is clear nepotism. We all can see it. It it really does, you know, on a serious note, I think, I think it really does sort of disparage and – undermine what should be a legitimate coaching position and a legitimate G League enterprise. I don't like to see this stuff happen because, you know, the G League, you know, like 47% of the league's players that are on ro- that were on rosters this season had some kind of G League experience. Like, it's become a legit kind of pseudo-minor league for the NBA. And you get some coaches who will get opportunities to coach teams that wouldn't otherwise be there. And also, some front office people who get a chance to kind of experiment. They're experimenting with, like, ticketless entry and other things like that over the years that have found their way into the NBA. It, it sort of undercuts and undermines the integrity of the G League. 
I about them apples. I also think it's it's sad because Lindsey Harding is a you know is a good coach and an up and comer. I think that she deserves some praise for getting into that industry and becoming the G League coach. And I think just you know putting his daughter as the general manager kind of like you said kind of hurts it a little bit. Like it should be celebrated 100%. that Lindsey Harding is the G League coach. And I think it's great. And you know we thought Becky Hammond maybe the first female head coach at the NBA. Maybe it's gonna be Lindsey Harding, but now it's just like I don't know. It just kind of put a damper on everything. Moving on, the number three story. I'm doing a good job keeping track. We're at number three now, Stephen. More, more basketball coach news. Uh, Bob Huggins, he resides as the men's coach at West Virginia after on Friday night he was allegedly driving under mm. the influence. Huggins, he was arrested Friday in Pittsburgh after police observed a black SUV blocking traffic around 8.30 with a, quote, flat and shredded tire and the driver's side door open, according to the report. Now, also according to that report, a breath, uh, the breath test determined that Huggins' blood alcohol content was 0.21%, which is more than twice the legal limit of 0.08% in, pen, in, 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 uh, in Pennsylvania. And a blood sample also was taken for Huggins at a hospital prior to his release. release. Now, we all remember six weeks ago when Bob Huggins used an anti-gay slur in an interview with the Cincinnati radio station. He received a $1 million salary reduction, three-game suspension, along with a men's contract that was essentially guaranteed for only one year. But now he is officially out as the head coach of West Virginia. Huggins, 935 wins in his career, John. Two Final Four appearances. A lot of jokes going on. A lot of people making light of what is kind of a sad situation. But I, I would look at Bob Huggins, and I would offer this. Sometimes you see uh, things that don't make sense. Like, you know, you'll, you'll see a team that has no, uh, no chemistry win games. Uh, you'll, see, um, you'll see people that are mismatched and, you know, they find a way to get along. Or they're unmatched and they're, they end up matched. Uh, but Bob Huggins getting a DUI and blowing a, a, a .21 on the breathalyzer, you know, less than a month after he was on a radio show where he completely embarrassed his university, and oh, by the way, he had like a garbage bag full of empty beer cans in the back of his car. He had a cooler within reach of his seat. Like there's a whole bunch of jokes being made. I actually think this one's kind of sad. It's a really sad story. And, you know, I don't know what he's going to do without basketball, but we're going to find out. I hope Bob Huggins gets some help. He needs help. Number four. Uh, yeah, number four. Michael Malone, head coach of the Nuggets. More coach news. I'm a big coach coach guy today. Uh, he got a tattoo on his left shoulder of Maxie the Miner, which is the Nuggets mascot, holding the Larry O'Brien trophy. And Malone, he's been having just an absolutely great time since the Nuggets have won the NBA championship. He's been out, you know, getting super hammered at the parade, drinking champagne. He made a joke about LeBron James uh, in an interview with Pat McAfee where he said he was thinking of retiring after the win, just like LeBron said he was going <laughs> to retire after the loss. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Malone deserves it, though. He's been coaching since 93, worked his way from a high school assistant job all the way to the NBA, was fired by the Kings. I don't know if people remember that. He coached the Sacramento Kings for two seasons, actually had him on the right direction with DeMarcus Cousins. He got hurt. They uh, fired him. He landed with the Nuggets, and now he is the uh, head championship coach of the bas of the NBA world and uh, having a great time, John. Would you get a tattoo if uh, you were a head coach and you won a championship? I'm not a tattoo guy. You know, I've always thought, you know, I should get a tattoo. And then I thought, well, what do I want on my body when I'm like 95? You know, like, do I want barbed wire around my bicep when I'm 95 walking around the gym? I don't think so. Do I want Marvin the Martian on my shoulder? No, that doesn't work either. Like, I've never really found anything that that uh, 
that I really like that much. I'll tell you what I love about coaches who get it, okay? And Mike Malone gets it. Tattoos aside, um, I talked about the fostering of good chemistry. I think a the general manager of a team goes a long way towards assembling players who are going to fit. But when you talk about true chemistry, uh, the ability to bring together players who have different agendas and get them all pointed in the same direction, you have to ultimately put that on the head coach. Mike Malone walks that line between being cocky and being assertive in a deft manner. I like that. Is it cocky to say, hey, uh, you know, I thought I was going to retire afterwards, or hey, you know, during the NBA finals, he was, you know, during the run-up to the finals, he was the whole time, you know, pointing out all the ways in which the Denver Nuggets were, you know, dissed. And, you know, uh, 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 by the way, this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, the team that we built through the draft, and all, you know, we're, we're the underdog. They were not the underdog. They were playing the best basketball in the NBA, and it became evident over time. But he walked that line between being very assertive with his team and being downright cocky in a way that I really appreciated. Like, I found myself looking at Michael Malone and the Nuggets and going, they're not only the best team, they're the, they're the best coach team that's, that's playing right now in the playoffs. And I thought it was interesting because when, it, when we got to the finals and we saw Miami with Eric Spolstra and Denver with Michael Malone, like there's a lot of years where I look at the coaches in the NBA finals and I go, you know, it's interchangeable. The best talent won. And you might be able to say that about Denver, but the fact that you had chemistry, unmatched chemistry, literally unmatched chemistry with the Denver Nuggets. You had a coach that was walking that line between being very assertive with his team and being a little bit cocky in a way that we all sort of said, you know, we're okay with. Um, I just thought it was really fun to watch what the Nuggets did. And that, for that, Michael Malone does not deserve a, a tattoo. He deserves a pat on the back. And I think it proves, this is the kind of stuff that proves, like, you're a player's coach and you get it, right? Like, it's like you said, he really loved that team and what he's representative of the team, and he's worked so hard to get to this moment. I mean, you got to give him some props for that. So, uh, all good on the Mike Malone front. He seems like a uh, great coach, kind of a crazy person, but uh, I like him as a coach. Number five. All right, College World Series is going on, and, John, they have a tradition at the College World Series with jello shots. Um, I don't know if you know this. Yeah, I know it. They, yeah, they, uh, all the schools, they participate trying to buy as many jello shots as possible. LSU, though, they have broken the record right now. They're over 21,000 jello Surprises shots. Surprises nobody. Well, I, I got a problem with it. So the old record was 18,777, which was set by Ole Miss last season when the program made its run to a national title. LSU, they're up to 21,000, but... Um, it's because of Todd Graves, who's the founder yeah. of Raising Canes. He set a Guinness World Record by buying 6,000 Jello shots for the crowd, which amounted $30,000. I feel like there's an asterisk next to this. Ole Miss, they went out, and their fans, one by one, they're buying Jello shots. Todd Graves comes in and says, you know what? I'm just going to buy a bunch, and now we're the record holders. I don't know. I, I don't really count it. I don't buy it. I, I think it's a little asterisk here uh, that LSU has the, has the championship. And it's going to be an unbreakable record. Just can we get rich people to buy us Jello shots? No, it's got to have. We got to have some rules set. There's got to be it a, like somebody's parent in the jogathon, just going, "I'm going to donate five hundred dollars." Yeah. And instead of uh, you, you know your kid going door to door, really soliciting 
the uh, the donations and the pledges. Yeah, call like, me a hater, but I respect the hustle out of Ole Miss last season and the Jello Shot race. But uh, LSU is still in the College World Series. They did lose to Wake Forest yesterday or on Monday. Wait, that would be yesterday. I guess they lost Sunday, and now they're playing Tennessee. Uh, so they still got a little bit of chance to elevate that number, but I think it's I think it's an asterisk next to it. I don't think they're the real champs. I agree with you. I have been to an LSU spring football game in Baton Rouge. Let me tell you. The LSU fan basically turns the spring game into a cocktail party. That's what it's about. It's about cornhole and jello shots and whatever they're drinking and, you know, in their uh, in their hats and their bow ties and dresses and all that stuff. And uh, I, I think you're right here. I think, uh, Stephen, you get outraged only infrequently. But as long as, you know, I was talking about how assertive and cocky and all the chemistry and all that stuff Mike Malone was doing in the last segment. This flies in the face of all that. It does. Like this, this is like, hey, uh, you know, somebody, wrote, somebody's daddy wrote a check and they broke the Jello shot record. You know, you gotta, you gotta work for what you earn, and they didn't earn it. They didn't earn this title. I want someone else next season go break it. Now, twenty-one thousand compared to uh, Stanford, who uh, bought seven hundred and twenty Jello shots. They weren't even last place though. Virginia uh, in the rear, five hundred and sixty-nine Jello shots for them. Bad outing for the Cavaliers. Well, I don't know. Are Jello shots? Help me out here. That's a five at five, by the way. Are Jello shots like? Is that something that you know? When did that get associated with a baseball game? It's just, I know I've been to Omaha. That's that's a great event. But you know, when I when I think baseball, I don't think Jello shot. I think hot dog. I think sunshine. I think sunflower seeds. I think um, I think a cold beer. You know, beer never tasted better than when you're at a baseball game on a hot day. I think this Rocco's bar in Omaha just wanted to come up with some fun thing to do and charge $5 as they do for a jello shot and then make a uh, ton of money during uh, during the College World Series. I think that's what they wanted to do. Well, let's uh, give them credit. They're yeah. the real winner. Uh, I was in Omaha with Oregon State when they won the national championship. Uh, I think it was their second one that I uh, I went to church with Pat Casey. And I wrote a column about going to church with Pat Casey, and I remember uh, he and I walking down the street, and I said to him, "Hey, I want to write a column about you tomorrow." And it was it happened to be the Sunday morning, the in the middle of the uh, in their their run, and uh, he says, "Well, I'm going to church tomorrow morning. You can meet me on the corner there." And Pat Casey and I walked to church, and I sat in the church with him, and uh, you know, wrote a column about Pat and the walk we had to and from, and and you know, for for people who don't know that event in Omaha, you know, Omaha is just just regular old sleepy town that this tournament descends upon every May and June and ends up being a festival of baseball. And it's a great event, and there are people who go to the event who don't have a rooting interest in a team, who just go and they pick out a team and they root for the team this year, and then they root for another team the next year. And when Oregon State went to Omaha in those years, they got a big following. And I, on one of the off days, decided, because I was like, what else is there to do in Omaha? And I found out, you know, like everybody else knows, that Warren Buffett, the uh, billionaire investor, he lives right there in Omaha. And in fact, at the time, he lived in the house that he originally bought just right there, like, you know, a couple miles from the stadium. And so I looked it up, and I drove over to Warren Buffett's house, like some creeper, and I uh, said, oh, my gosh, like, there's no gate around this place. It was just a normal, nice house, in a, you know, in a nice neighborhood. It wasn't over the top. And... So I said, you know what, it'd be fun to write a column about Warren Buffett in this house. And so I went up to the door, and a couple things struck me as I got to the door. Number one, uh, Buffett had his car in the driveway. It's a normal car. It was like an eight-year-old car. 
It wasn't like over the top. He had a clothesline in the backyard that I could see as I was walking up to the porch. And hanging from the clothesline were like his undershirts, like Hanes white T-shirts. And on the doorstep, it looked to me like he had been to Costco or somewhere like that. And there was a bunch of like, you know, 12 packs of like Dr. Pepper on the doorstep. I knocked on the door. Nobody came to the door. I left my card. I left the place. Uh, He reached out to me almost immediately saying, hey, sorry, he's missed me. And we did kind of a mini interview. And I wrote a column about the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. And I stayed in touch with him via email uh, for a couple of few weeks after that. He was a big fan of the College World Series, and he was a big fan of Oregon State. And it was a lot of fun to write about that. But, you know, you talk about a ride. Like everybody, every sports fan wants to go on a ride, right? You talk about your team going to Omaha or your team going to the college football playoff or your team like San Diego State in the NCAA tournament. What a wild, fulfilling, rich experience that was for Aztec fans who got to go on this magical journey during the NCAA tournament. Omaha has that, and it comes for the championship-winning team, compacted into like a 10- or 12-day period of time. Yes, there are jello shots going on in the background, but, man, sports fans, you know this. You don't come to sports to hear about NIL. You don't come to sports to hear about contracts and gambling seminars that the NFL is going to put on, or you don't even come to hear about realignment. Or No, you come for the escape that it is. It's the ride. Everybody wants that magical ride. Leave it here. Get the bald face tree. Well, what's going on? Steven, what's going on? Oh, nothing. Just uh, sweating this blazer stuff, man. Are you really? You got peace with it? Are you really worried at, about I, it? No, I'm at peace with it. I'm just kind of digging in, seeing what I, you know, like you and I can were talking about. What's real, what's not? Trying to figure out whatever wants. None of it's real. Let's start there. There's no general manager who is going to let a deal get out before it becomes a deal. Like, look at the deals we actually see happen, like Bradley Beal, the trade, you know. Like, all right, what do we actually see happening with trades? What we see is a lot of trades that don't happen that get leaked out and a lot of agendas. Agents want the best interests of their clients to be supported, so they leak something. Teams leak things that are in their best interest. Um, You very rarely see a deal talked about that becomes a deal in the end. And so don't get too swept up into the smoke. Um, I think, in fact, more smoke doesn't necessarily mean that anything's happening. I think people are just looking at the Blazers going, hey, they're potentially a player here. I think the one thing you have going in your favor for your Blazer fan is I do think there's a real allergy from the current ownership management structure. There's a real allergy for them to look dumb. They don't want to look dumb. I think they're very much risk-averse right now because I don't think Joe Cronin wants that on his resume, and I don't think Burt Cold can afford a face plant with the three-pick. And so... I think that for that reason, they'll probably play it safe. I expect the Blazers to pick at number three on Thursday. Um, I think the the smoke and the risk-taking will happen at 23 and 43. They'll take it on a smaller scale where they can afford to be wrong, and nobody's going to go, oh, you're an idiot. 
And that's what they're afraid of. Like, good franchises don't operate that way. Good franchises take risks. <laughs> and the Blazers, the Blazers have historically not been a great franchise. So, uh, yeah, there's no no faith yeah. in that direction. I want them to be good. I do, like, too. Like, okay, so I feel bad sometimes when we have this conversation. Because I feel like I'm, it's almost like I'm taking something that you love so dearly. And I'm pointing out all the flaws in it. Do you feel that that I do that too much with the Blazers? Um, I don't, but I also tend to think the same way you do, and I like the Blazers. Like I'm an actual Blazer fan. Grew up in you know Portland. Been watching them my whole life. Uh, wrote numerous papers on them when I was going up in school in college. But I understand how bad they've been as a franchise. Like if it wasn't for the love of the Blazers, it's like. How could anyone ever like this team? Like, if I wasn't born here, how, how could you like this team? They're a terribly run franchise. Yeah, they're well, there there's some good people who work for them. Yes, you definitely. Know? I I think uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of good people who work in the organization. I think, like for example, you were working there when I was bagging on the organization not that long ago, and I said I would say there's good people working for the organization, and I knew you were there. See? Yeah. And and so I think there are a lot of other good people still working for the organization. I actually think the president of business, Dwayne Hankins, is a smart, competent, good business strategist and leader. He is. He is not part of the problem. But for that reason, I expect that at some point he'll do what Chris McGowan, his predecessor, did and go, I got to get the hell out of here. You know, Chris McGowan's now president of business for MLS. Is he in a better place? Yes. Hell yes, he's in a better place. Um, I think uh, I think it, for Blazer fans out there, let me just say this because I spent a lot of today's show pointing out all the flaws. And, and I'm not doing it because I want the Blazers to fail. I'm doing it because I want the Blazers to succeed. And I think if the Blazers did it themselves, we wouldn't be here. If in 2016 they had gotten real and looked in the mirror and said, okay, we're not, you know, we're not in a position to contend we should not be adding pieces like you know taking weird free agent moves and signing players that were just going to help get you two wins better instead of 20 wins better um you know the blazers made a lot of mistakes in the summer of 2016 and then instead of acknowledging the mistakes they kind of rode those out for a couple of years and that you know that's how you end up going nowhere and you know the, your ceiling becomes hey can we be like a four seed Three seed, not really going anywhere, not going to ever break through, but can we, you know, can we be pretty good? So for Blazer fans who think I nitpick the team, I want to offer you a couple minutes here where I talk about everything that's right with Trailblazers, Inc. And I'm going to start with the fan base. The Trailblazers have an incredible asset in their fan base in that you have a franchise that does not have an owner, that really didn't have a chance truly in the last few years to win. And I still saw enthusiasm from diehard Blazer fans, peripheral sports fans, children across the state of Oregon and southern Washington who believed deeply in what the Blazers were trying to do and supported the team, even though probably down deep they knew this team is not going to win an NBA title. And there are some fan bases that would not do that. I have said forever that the greatest asset of the Trailblazers organization is not the Moda Center. It is not the pinwheel logo. It is not Damian Lillard's contract or the 1977 championship. The greatest asset is the fan base because you have a diehard fan base that the NBA cannot ignore when it comes to, hey, should we move this team ever? Not going to let it happen. 
hey, is that team not well supported? That would never be said about Trailblazers fans. You have a fan base that is loyal, that is committed, that invests their energy, their emotions, and their disposable income in the hopes and dreams of the Trailblazers. They buy jerseys, they buy tickets, they go to games. There are mothers who take their sons to games and root for the team just because, hey, it's a good experience to go to a game. And there are fathers who take their children, and Stephen, you took your family just because, hey, you know, it's a fun family night, and we can all enjoy this and bond over it. The fan base is, there's nothing wrong with the Blazers fan base. There's also nothing wrong, really, with the central location of Moda Center. Like, a lot of people say to me, like, hey, you know, there's nothing around the Moda Center. Oh, no, there's no entertainment district. It's not the problem. The problem is you, ha- you don't have ownership that has developed the entertainment district around the building. And hopefully whoever buys the team in the future, when it eventually is sold, will develop it and put restaurants and shopping and nightclubs, and suddenly you'll have somewhere to go before the game and after the game, and maybe if the game's not so good, you can leave the game and go a- and walk around. So, you know, a lot of other teams in pro sports have done these kinds of things. The Blazers haven't. But the problem's not Moda Center. That building, the bones of the building, are decent. It can be upgraded. It needs some upgrades. I also think if we're chalking up what's right with the Trailblazers, we have to include some of the good young players. Can I get an amen for Shaden Sharp? Amen. I mean, he's part of the future, is he not? Like He's great. Yeah. What do you like about him, besides no. the fact that he hits his head on the ceiling when he dunks? I mean, that is it's a great great feature that he can do that. Uh, no, but he does these. he does little things. Right, and I think as a 19-year-old who didn't play college basketball, uh, you know, missed part of high school, like you, you thought there would be some type of adjustment, and there was, but he made those adjustments and he creates space for himself, and the stage wasn't too big for him. I never really saw him get like oversped, like oversped up. He always stayed at a great neutral speed, and he made the game look easy. And I think that's very hard to do when you're in the NBA, especially at such a young age. There's a few guys that do this. Uh, Zach Levine is one of them where he just makes the game look really easy. And I think Shaden Sharp falls into that category where when he makes a move and he does a little step back jump shot, he he's not off balance. He's on balance. He stays under control when he's jumping up in the air and he's making these moves. He's under control. Like he knows what he's doing. And I think it's very hard to find, especially in a young player. So that's, that's, that's extremely what I love about him. Uh, he seems like a very humble kid so far. So there's really nothing not to like about Shane Sharp. Now, does he have room to improve? Of course he does. Does he have room to improve on the defensive side? Defensive side, a lot he does. Uh, but so far, so good uh, with Shane Sharp. Like Shane Sharp. Uh, I also like Damian Lillard. Let's say that. He, let's ch- let's put him into the category of what's going well for the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, our good friend of the show. Uh, you know, we've talked over the years with motivational speakers like. You know, uh, John Green and, you know, I once had a long conversation with uh, Dr. Uh, Wayne Dyer. But, uh, you know, Greg Bell, who wrote the book Water the Bamboo, has followed up with another book called What's Going Well. I would include Damian Lillard in chapter, like, four of What's Going Well of the Trailblazers book. Like, you know, Damian Lillard's not the problem with the Trailblazers. He has become sort of this focal point this flashpoint for like a big decision that needs to be made by the organization and in part you know it's it's uh, been generated or i think been fueled by lillard's age he's now going to be 33 here in just a couple of weeks and he's kind of looking at his watch and he's going hey what dame time dame time's coming or is it going dame time's running out here for the trailblazers but he's not the problem he's given portland more loyalty that it probably deserved as an organization. 
He has been a good soldier. He has uh, shown up for work. Yes, we can nitpick and say, oh, he's been well compensated for it. It probably, you know, it was probably the bigger motivating factor than loyalty, if we're being real. The fact that he was eligible for max and super max contracts by staying with the team that originally drafted him. He's no dummy. But I also think, like, look, by NBA standards, he's been about as loyal as you could have expected him to be. And so let's put him in the category of, hey, the assets that the Trailblazers organization has has a pretty good star player who has remained mostly loyal to a fault to this point, despite the fact that the team never really built around him. The, the one thing I have criticism of Dame is that he didn't do this when he was 28 years old. Like, I wish he would have said these type of things, like, you know, he'd come out and say, oh, if I played for a different team, it would be Brooklyn or Miami when he's 28, and put pressure on the team then, not right now. Like, I think it would have been so much different, but now that he's this age, like, it's hard to say, you know what, we're going to build with Dame for another two, three years. We don't know what he's going to be, but when he was younger, it would have been great, because he was awesome. Like, he is the man. Yeah, he's he's been... Uh, look, I'll go further in saying, like, you know, I haven't been on board with being like, oh, he's so loyal, he's so loyal to this point because I'm going, he's getting paid to be loyal. And, you know, it's not like he's just staying in Portland, you know, out of the kindness of his heart. Like, he's making far more money as a trailblazer than he could make in other places. And also, the organization's been mostly kind of crafted around his likeness and his image and, the you know, elevated his profile in a way that he probably wouldn't be elevated in some other markets certainly if he were not the number one star for a lot of other teams. And there was a time when I believed that Lillard maybe wasn't Batman. Like, he was more like Robin in, in the Batman and Robin thing. And I, and I, and I, I want to say that with a caveat. Like, look, I, I acknowledge the statistical greatness. I acknowledge the fact that, like, he scored 71 points in a game. But I think it would have been a better scenario for him to not feel like he had to go out and score 50 so much, so many times, to have this team – be competitive. And I think that's where the Blazers got in trouble. Yeah, it benefited Dame because what did it do? It elevated his profile, elevated his brand, clearly the face of the franchise. But I think for all of us who were kind of watching from press row, you know, this is an organization that was built on, you know, previous regimes like Clyde Drexler and Cliff Robinson and Kevin Duckworth and certainly back to Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas, Bobby Gross. And, and frankly, uh, more recently, LaMarcus Aldridge and Brandon Roy. And it was evident when Neil O'Shea drafted Damian Lillard that he was clearing everybody out of the way so that Lillard could shine. And he did shine. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to put that in the win category if you're a Blazer fan. Here's another, here's another thing the Blazers have that's going well. They've got the number three pick. They were not entitled to that pick. They lucked into the number three pick in a draft that happens to have three Really good prospects in it. That's really fortunate if you're a Blazer fan. So, Stephen, for every moment that you feel like, oh, gosh, gloom and doom, I don't know what's going hey, you got a great franchise that's well-supported by the fan base, paying, playing in a building that I think one day will be developed by an owner who's worth a damn. Uh, also, you've got um, you know a star player in Damian Lillard. You've got good young players, including Shaden Sharp, and you're sitting on the number three pick. It's not all bad. It definitely could be worse. That's for sure. Um, yeah, you're, you know, you're making me count my blessings a little bit with the Blazers, but you know what, John? I won a championship, so uh, please do right and uh, make the right decisions, Portland Trailblazers, because I uh, have no faith. Well, but yeah. <laughs> maybe that's just me being a pessimistic Blazer fan my whole life too. You've, you know? you've been through it. You're yeah. like a Cub, you're like a Cubs fan. I mean, you know? there's not many fan bases that have been hurt worse than Trailblazer fans. It's true, and we're coming upon. 
you know, I think it only needs to be about five or eight more years, and I think it will get to the point where, like, the rest of America will kind of say, okay, well, wait a minute, it's their turn. Uh, you know, like, we do that. We did that for Cleveland. You know, you do that for Boston when the Red Sox break through in, I think it was 2004. You know, you, you have those moments where you're happy for that fan base. Portland's got one of those moments coming. Leave it here. Well, the Bald Face Truth Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament is uh, coming up uh, a week from Thursday. It'll be June 29th at the Reserve Golf Course and Vineyards. Uh, I want to thank Chris Rogers and the uh, team at the Reserve uh, for all the work they're doing and uh, helping put on a great charity event for the BFT Foundation. And, uh, of course, I want to thank High Caliber Millwrights, Brandon and the team at High Caliber. They are the presenting sponsor of the 10th Annual Event. And uh, I want to thank all the celebrity golfers from Miss Oregon who will be out there golfing, uh, helping out kids, to uh, celebrities like Alex Molden and Mark Wazikowski, Oregon's uh, baseball coach, and Scott Ruick, the Oregon State women's basketball coach. He's going to be out there as a celebrity golfer as well, among others. You can see the full list of celebrity golfers and and uh, at baldfacetruth.org or make a tax-deductible donation if you want to help promote the event and uh, help kids win just go to baldfacedtruth.org and uh, make that donation it's tax deductible this 501c3s helping kids in art music education and athletics uh, you can see the celebrities there you can make a donation there and you can listen to the live broadcast right here on the radio station that you're listening to uh, a week from thursday 3 to 6 p.m yeah, it'll be Stephen Vaughn, it'll be Judah Newby on scene at the reserve, on the call, and uh, talking to a lot of golfers, and um, probably not talking to me, because uh, they're going to have a bunch of celebrity golfers out there that are uh, running around, and I will be uh, hoping the event uh, goes off as planned. It's kind of like having a wedding, you know, and I have uh, over the years learned that um, you just have to kind of have to uh, have faith that it comes together, and it generally does, and you know there are a bunch of uh, there are a bunch of businesses like Gresham Ford and Shoe Mill and First Call Heating and Cooling and The Wall and Bricks Tavern and uh, and uh, others who come together and make it happen. It is also uh, sponsored by White Claw and uh, our good friends at Breakside Brewery. So there'll be some alcohol flowing out there as well. So maybe a couple of these celebrities will be uh, you know have a drink or two in them. You know, I once interviewed Gaylord Perry at a golf tournament. That was quite an interview uh, to talk to Gaylord Perry, who was a little sauced up at the time as I interviewed him and talked to him about spitballs and Vaseline and all sorts of things that, you know, uh, uh, I probably uh, shouldn't have been told. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Dale Scott will be out there, Major League Baseball umpire. Jimmy Joyce will be out there. He's an umpire as well. So we have two umpires on the scene. And somebody, hopefully, We'll make a hole-in-one. There's a $25,000 prize for somebody making a hole-in-one. So maybe one of these celebrity golfers will walk off with twenty-five k. Maybe they'll donate it back to the charity. Who knows? Steven, are you excited? Yeah, I am pumped. Uh, you know, I, you know, like I said, I, I started right when it, when it happened last year, uh, the golf tournament, so I wasn't really like a part of it. So I kind of know about it and you know, reading up on it and being a part of that day. Was a lot of fun, but now to be you know a more integral part, it's uh, it's exciting. I'm gonna be uh, gonna be happy to be out there. It's really fun because the funnier part is that the celebrities get drafted, and the celebrity golfers get nervous about the draft. You know, there's nothing like you know. I won't go into too many details. I don't want to embarrass anybody. There's nothing worse than like being on the playground and having two captains and having picking teams. 
and the celebrities are left in that position. Neil Lomax, all-pro quarterback. Alex Molden, first-round NFL draft pick. Miss Oregon, out there. Scott Ruick, Mark Wazikowski out there. Um, Mike Walter, he's won three Super Bowls. Bobby Gross, he's got a jersey retired with the Blazers, 77 champion. Marcus Harvey founded a company called Portland Gear. He's the CEO and founder. Tom Gorman pitched in the big leagues. Shante Leggins coaches basketball at the University of Portland. All of those guys, along with a bunch of others, will be uh, at the mercy of the teams, and the teams will draft. And the draft order is its not like the NBA, where the draft order is determined by a draft lottery. No, no. The draft order, here's the brilliance of the event. The draft order is decided by which team donates the most money for kids in the BFT Foundation. So you have a really cool jockeying of position that happens. It's happening right now among all these teams who are all going, hey, no, you know what, we'll give 1000 bucks. We'll give 2000 bucks. Hey, we'll give 2500 And pretty soon it's not just who's jockeying for the number one pick because nobody really knows, like, does the number one team want to draft Miss Oregon or want to draft, like, you know, Mark Wazikowski, the baseball coach at Oregon, and just, like, chat him up? And, you know, what's it like to be you kind of conversation? Or are they really looking for a good golfer? And, oh, by the way, among the celebrities, who can golf? Because some of the celebrities are terrible golfers. You know, I'll be the first to say I've been out there. I watched Myers Leonard one time. He could hit a ball a mile, okay? This is before he got all offensive on video games. He got up to the first tee, and it looked like, you know, it was, you know, Paul Bunyan holding an axe, and he hit the ball a mile, Stephen. I'm not exaggerating. The ball disappeared. It looked like it was going to the moon. He had no short game, okay? He's a terrible golfer, but man, could he drive. But the cool thing is some of these golfers this year are really good golfers. One of the players that's playing as a celebrity golfer is the Nebraska women's golf coach, Lisa Johnson. She is a PGA Class A pro. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. She's going to be good. Anytime you put pro in there and, like, class A, I mean, because when you're talking classes, if you go class B, like, you know it's probably not the top. The class A, you know that's the top. Yeah, it sounds good. It sounds really good. Here's another one. Amy Troy, media personality, former KGW anchor. She plays golf every day, I'm told. She's going to get drafted by somebody who's like, oh, I just want to talk to the news lady about, you know, what it was like to anchor the news. No, no, no. She's going to carve that course up and help somebody win. Some of the teams take it really seriously. Last year, the the team shoe mill, uh, shoe stores, massive upset win. Nobody knows quite how they did it because those guys are generally just out there to have fun and play in the event. And they drafted Shante Leggins, the University of Portland uh, men's basketball coach, and these other teams were, like, bringing in a bunch of ringer golfers, trying to win the event. There's a giant cup that gets passed off to the winner at the end. It's like winning the Stanley Cup, for crying out loud. And Shante Leggins and the University of Portland guys, when they found out they won, they were in little, literally disbelief that they had won the event. They weren't really looking at the leaderboard because it happens in live time. You can track, you know, what hole everybody's on and what the score is on. And they won the damn event, and... Their jaws dropped, and it was kind of cool to see it. So they got their name on the trophy, and Shumil gets gets to hang on to the trophy until this year's event. But it'll be a lot of fun to see who's out there to win, who's out there just to have some fun. I'm out there to help uh, this event go off smoothly 
and uh, make sure that the kids of the BFT Foundation are the ultimate winners. So thank you to Shoe Mill. Thank you to Breakside Brewery. Thank you to The Wall. Thank you to First Call Heating and Cooling and Gresham Ford and 750 The Game in Portland. And Sport Oregon is a sponsor as well. I want to thank them for their support. And Grassroot Printers, I want to thank them. And White Claw, Bricks Tavern, Jamba. Jamba's, Steve from Jamba's got a team. Like, Jamba, like is anybody going to mess with Jamba at the golf tournament? We'll find out. Plus, as I mentioned earlier, high-caliber millwrights, the supporting sponsors. So I want to thank everybody who helps make that event a tremendous success, uh, including the celebrity golfers. But I want to thank you as well, listeners who will tune in a week from Thursday. The draft is Thursday for the NBA and then the BFT Foundation Golf Tournament, which is gen- generally regarded as the fifth major. That is the a week from Thursday. So, you know, maybe we'll get uh, maybe we'll get a surprise winner like the U.S. Open. And I'll take some odds if anyone wants to bet. You know, I'll, I'll hold the cash. There you go. See, you'll be on the call. You'll be on the broadcast. So, uh, the bald face truth not here for a long time. Just a good time. If you want to get a podcast of today's show, find it wherever you find a podcast. I'm not going to insult your intelligence. And if you want to read me, you find me at johnconzano.com. Back tomorrow with another great show.